the semi draw came out and we literally had the semi of death with a solid row we would come fourth or fifth we've got the croatians tufta we had the kiwis who'd beaten us in poznan the bulgarians who every time we'd race them in a semi they'd knocked us out of the final and the other double was the australians banksy said to us beforehand he was like guys you've got this race if you do what you've always done you're not going to make the final so you've got to do something you've never done before. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, you, you're telling us we're going to change the plan right before the biggest race of our lives. And he was like, what you're going to do is you're going to do your last 500 in the third 500. <laughs> hey, what is up? Welcome to Last Stroke Counts. We've got a pretty epic episode planned out today. We do have our first Olympian on the show. Please welcome John Collins. Yeah, this is a, it's a good one. Um, uh, really happy to have you on, mate. Uh, we've rode together a bit in the past, um, just to give a few of the highlights. Uh, there's way too many to name, but uh, junior coup medalist, um, twice been to the under 23 world championships, Seven Henley Royal Regatta wins, which is unbelievable. Yeah. Six senior world championships. Um, and then to top it off, two Olympic Games in Rio and Tokyo with fourth and fifth place. Uh, and then John wanted me to, to make sure that I also pointed out the most important thing being the 2015 Hansa Cup win. <laughs> That's for James Rodkin. <laughs> so, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, obviously, man, it's, uh, there's, there's not many people who have been around and still doing it um, yeah. that started when you started. Um, but to get into that, then uh, let us know like how, how and when did you first get into rowing? Um, so I actually, like, I would have hated sport before I started rowing. Like, I was rubbish at it. I can't, I can't catch or uh, run. So, like, you know, that rules out almost everything. <laughs> um, but I did a, so I took up the Duke of Edinburgh Award at school and uh as part of that you have to do a sport and so obviously i'm there like trying to work out like what sport requires neither of neither of the above um and my dad used to row and his dad used to row so it was like well why don't you try rowing and i had a go on my dad's rowing machine i was like nah i'm not doing that that's horrible uh but then obviously when it came to a point where i had to choose a sport to do um it was like well we'll just you know go down to a rowing club and see how you find it um and so I went down to Twickenham initially, but they didn't have juniors there. Um, there's a couple of Twickenham guys in the team now. So it's always quite fun to be like, yeah, I got turned away from Twickenham. Um, so ended up at Putney Town. Um, and yeah, went out in a double with this guy called Jeff Adams, who's still there now. I think he's the chairman, uh, or maybe not the president, no, the chairman. But he, um, yeah, he took me out in a double and it was like, it was December and it was, it was like, cold and wet and horrible and it hurt and i was rubbish but when we came back here um uh, my dad obviously then goes up to him he's like oh you know how how was that and jeff goes oh i could keep up and obviously for a kid who was like had like about as much athletic ability as a breeze block i was just like as soon as he said that i was good i was just like yeah i'll do that then um and that was it was basically all downhill from there <laughs> that's definitely interesting because like everyone we're saying we're getting really uh interesting to see like all these other sports that people are doing yeah and i think you'd be the first one that was like nah like sport wasn't for me i've literally done nothing else um <laughs> like the i the only cycling i've done this as a result of rowing i did some 
the I guess the only other thing I've really done in any meaningful capacity was running after Tokyo. Um, but other than that, it's like I've basically done nothing else. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with that running. I thought as a heavyweight, no, it's a, yeah, it's no, a savage. That, I mean, we'll get onto that, but that took a toll, a big toll on me. So I wouldn't recommend anyone over 90 kilos running like that because it, it messed me up. Yeah, I bet. Um, so that's sort of what, like J14 or a bit earlier or? Uh, or J, probably. J16, yeah. J16, um, my first, my first proper competitive event, I think was, uh, indoor rowing champs at, um, the, uh, Brit, uh, what's it called? Birmingham, the mm -hmm. arena in Birmingham. Indoor, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Yeah. I think it was called something different then as well. But, um, yeah, there was like Mo was there, Charles Cousins was there. Um, and they all, you know, beat me by about. 45 seconds or something well, that's still pretty good if that was your first event so what was your what was your 2k then i think i did a 701 it was my first, as, was, a, as a j16 yeah which like i thought was quite good uh, like at punny town that was good yeah um but obviously when you got mo i think he was pulled like a 608 or something and it was like well but everyone so what what year did you finish school what was your last year of school uh well, I did, I did my A levels in 07. Yeah, so, so we're the same year. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember coming up as well, like that Molsey 4 with yeah. my Mo, like that was like well known. Yeah. Like everyone had heard about those guys. Like you saw them walking around just like, yeah. How? Yeah. These giants. But then, so from to go from first competition J16 to then two years later being at Coop. Yeah. It's a bit of a trajectory. So it obviously took off. Yeah. From, from hating sport to presumably going down the rabbit hole of rowing. Well, yeah, so my training at Putney Town was basically that I would go down on a Wednesday and do either a 2K or a 5K ergo. And that was just that was just basically it. And then row at the weekends, maybe twice, some more often than not, just once. Um, and yeah, like my, my times were rapidly like moving me up into the men's squad there. And it was like, I don't think I should be, like this is a bit, like what's going on um like i wasn't that good at rowing but like because my times were good I, my on the ergo i was like well i must be all right with this and so um quite quickly i then just walked across chiswick bridge to, to tideway scholars and met alan Innes, who was like my first proper well my first proper coach was at putting town a guy called shameless keating but um he sort of like encouraged me across the bridge to scholars to meet Alan Inns who had coached guys to the Olympics and basically I walked in there and he was like I sort of explained to him my situation and he was like well do you want to go to the Olympics and I was like yeah uh, and he was like cool join the high performance group and you know I was training with guys who'd already done Olympics there like uh, Tim Mayo and guys like that and um that I mean they were light years ahead of me but like that sort of I was getting absolutely destroyed like every single day, but the trajectory that set me on like the standards that sort of woke me up to made me realize like what task was in front of me. And it was just a case of turning up every day and trying to get a little bit closer yeah. um, than the day before. And I think that was like, things really changed like then, like 2006, I'd say. We did a junior quad in 2006 um, in the Forley, lost to Marlowe. And after that, Alan Inns was like, right, we're going to have a good crack at this. It was like a structured weights program. I had like a weights coach at St. Mary's, uh, St. Mary's College in Twickenham, which I, I learned about like weightlifting. I learned about like proper training and 
it, yeah at that point it was like i'm not just doing this now i'm like in it for the long haul yeah that's a real tough environment but then tough tough places create tough people and i think like whilst everyone else at j16 is like messing about with a bunch of other kids that don't know what they're doing like you've put yourself in an environment where like you said like i remember that as well like you know first thing up at leander is just getting destroyed by everyone every yeah. day and then i don't know if i could do it now but for some reason deciding to go back for more yeah so like that obviously like has had a huge impact on like the speed that you've improved yeah and 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 also like it's just the environment i was in the got the my training i wasn't a part of the junior squad at tideway scholars i was in the high performance group and there was a couple of other juniors in there and the guys who we were training with were like they were going for under 23s a lot of them were lightweights they were like senior lightweight standard um and that was just what we were exposed to and we weren't a part of like a club group we weren't like you you often see at tideway scholars there's like 150 juniors going out in whatever boats they can get their hands on and I, I think quite fortunately, was never one of those. I was straight away a part of a very focused group. I love that as well, that like at 16, your coaches just sit you down and be like, do you want to get to the Olympics? Yeah, right. yeah. And, and, and without that, it was kind of like when someone actually asks you the question and you go, well, yeah. And because of course, like who doesn't want yeah. to do that? Like, um, but then when someone actually who's going to make the plan for you says that, it's like, well, that's that then yeah like when someone else starts to believe in you almost yeah you have that belief in yourself yeah i had it first year at the end of two or three months in brian armstrong sat down with me and was like oh you know you're going really well i think i think you know you could you could get a senior gb vest and like it's the first time in my life i was like what yeah because yeah. i was just here having a go like for years i was like oh, i'm just this sport yeah i'll try because i have to and then all of a sudden someone's made this thing real for you yeah and that, and that's was always kind of the thing it's like it even though like I knew that's what I wanted to do, it wasn't like that's what I was going for. It was like, let's see how close we can get. Like, It just became like, I'm having a go, but let's see if we can get there. And it's like, yeah. and obviously every year you get like a bit closer than the year before. So you're like, well, next year I might get closer. And that's kind of how my whole rowing career has kind of felt is like, I was just getting a little bit closer than the year before and the people that were in front of me a lot of them would just like disappear all of a sudden for whatever reason like they just stopped or they got injured and suddenly would be behind me instead of in front of me or they just weren't there at all yeah and then the next thing i know i'm like it's what 2012 and i'm in the double with alice and claire and it's like there's literally no one in front of us like for the, t the squad after london yeah and it's like, well, that you know, as soon as soon as that's over and people retire, that's like me that goes in then, and like, and that was literally just turning up every day, going, let's see how far we get, and and that's it. And like you said, like the amount of athletes when we're coaching, like I was, you know, the amount of times I've heard coach saying, like, just just keep turning up, just yeah, keep turning up, keep going. You're like, it can't be that simple. Like, there's got to be more to it. Yeah, it literally, is that simple? It's, it's it's obviously you don't just turn up. It's it's turning up every day and making sure you're you're like. A point one of a percent better than you were the day before being applied like yeah. mentally there as well you can't yeah. literally just go through the motions yeah. yeah and like there was a couple of years where i probably did like when i was at reading um like i just moved out of home and i was like rowing at a student boat club it was like this really good world-class start group i was there i was there for like two years and um they're obviously like living the student lifestyle going out quite a lot and i was like oh, i'll go out as well and having like a great time and obviously that doesn't go that well with training i think we came out with you a few times as well yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 
just like Ted, like it was very clear that I wasn't a student yeah. of, of Reading Uni. Yeah. I remember like it was like me, you, Phil was there. Phil Clark. Probably. Yeah. Adam, Adam was probably there. I know Tatlock was there. Yeah. And Matt one, Simmons. One time we all got in just drinking snake bite. Yeah. <laughs> and it is it like, the, the, yeah. And like I had a great time there. And actually like, so that, that was another, like that's sort of similar, in a similar vein to Alan asking me, did I want to go to the Olympics? There was a time where I'd been turning up late for training most days. I'd like not been doing that well. And Don McLaughlin, who was coaching me there, did me probably the biggest favor anyone could have done, which was he pulled out this this chair out of the kitchen at Reading Uni Boat Club and it was like this knackered old plastic chair with a bit of paint on. And that was well known to be his chopping chair. So when you weren't good enough to be there anymore, you got sat in this chair and he told you to go. And um, at the hand of Jürgen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he basically told me that he thought I should just call it a day, like that I should give up on wanting to go uh, to the Olympics and stuff. And like, you know, I, my, I wasn't going that well, all of this sort of stuff. And I was a bit like, oh. Is in that reverse psychology kind of almost? I don't think he meant for it to be. I think he literally was like, you're not in this. Like, But that making me ask that question myself, then make, I was like, oh, I actually need to do something here. Interesting though, because you like, like you say, being a Tardis scholar, it got so seriously so quickly. Mm. I think probably would have thought there's a benefit to have some more fun involved in it. Like yeah. a lot of people enjoy it first and then get serious. We should have kind of got serious. Yeah. I think also it was like, I found it very tough because um, I was like, like those years, like 2008, 2009, I was very much like up against it with selection and stuff like, in 08, I won, there was like a under 23 trial because that was Beijing year. Yeah. Um, and I won that in the single, well, it's like top under 23 in the single that year. And it was like, cool, well done. And then it was like, but we're not sending any scholars. And, um, you know, Charles and uh, Charles and Bill went in the double, but I like, they, I literally was like, I got, went home and that was that. Like, I, there was nothing more came of that. And I was like, well, what more do I need to do at that point? Like, yeah. I think we're both quite lucky that when we came up under 23, like GB really kind of expanded under 23. Yeah, yeah. Started sending full teams and stuff. Yeah. And well, yeah. So the following year, I then did the pay, uh, the pair with the, the great Ray Poulter. And, uh, well, that's what, yeah. So that's when you came to the end. Were yeah. you still rowing as Reading? I was rowing as Reading, but I did the pair with Ray. And um, yeah, made that sort of switch to sweep to see if I had any better luck. And mm. I could think we, we were the fourth fastest pair at final trials. And you're like, that should get you a seat race at least. And I didn't even get an invite. And it was literally, that was a year where they sent like, not just a full squad, but like coxed four, like all these extra boats. You, I think you were in the 2000, 2009, I went in the eight. Yeah, that was it. Um, but it was like such a full squad and yeah. I literally didn't get a look in. And so I think like that, that sort of year, I was a bit like, this is just, what am I even doing? Like this is brutal. Like, I feel like I'm doing what I can do and it's not really doing anything. Maybe it's just not, maybe it's just not gonna happen, you know? I think everyone, but like no one's ever got anywhere without feeling that at some yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, like that's, I think that's an important thing to think about. It's like, if, if you're thinking like, shit, this is hard. Like, fucking don't know if I'm gonna get anywhere with this. Like you probably, doing all right. Yeah. As long as you don't think about that all the time, but if sometimes that's coming, coming to your Yeah. But before we move on too far, I think 2008, I'd love to ask you about the whole year. And just like, from from your opinion, like it's really interesting listening to Dave because you just remember different things. And like, from my perspective, that whole year, I was 
I was like chasing my tail. Like I was always the last man in the boat. And yeah. Like that was my big focus. Yeah. How was it for you in that, in the, in the run up to it or in the event as well? Well, into that, in the, what the yeah. Thames Cup, the yeah, Thames yeah. Cup. Um, well, obviously like, so it was my first year of under 23. So uh, it was a little bit weird because um, in, off the back of Coop, I got invited to Cabochon to mix in with the under 23s. And I think like I'd obviously done something at Coop where they were like, or in the build up to that. Cause I know that myself and George Keynes had been quite, because we've been training alongside the junior world slot and our like times, our percentages were comparable to the junior world slot. And so they were like, oh, well, it's a bit late to send them now, but they are going well. Yeah. Um, and so we got invited down and I was rowing with these like senior athletes who were quite good. But um, I think, I think like I then, didn't perform i didn't make some meteoric rise after coup it took a long time and um and so then i was a little bit like forgotten about yeah. um and obviously i came good for the under 23 trial but <clears throat> by that point it was like i think i'd kind of disappointed the powers that be so it was a bit weird and then and then so obviously then at tideway scholars this thames cup eight got put together and it was like i knew the guys i knew that i'd be good because they'd made the final They'd lost in the final the year before, I think. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, most of them had kind of made Henley finals, but not, yeah. like Graham had made a couple, but yeah. not quite finished it. That was it, yeah, because there was a, a good quad yeah. that Graham was in, and Lucas Dalgleish was in it. He'd, he'd stroked that quad. Um, so th there was like, those guys were good, and there was like these other guys who'd all made Henley finals. It was like, yeah, this is going to be good. And I remember um, emailing Tom Gale, who was the coach at the time. He's coaching at UL now. And he, I said to him like, oh, I've just won under 23 trials. Can I have a seat in the eight? He was like, I'll oh, seat racing's this weekend. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Like he's gonna make me actually work for this. I'd never done like sweep seat racing at all. Yeah. Um, and so I went and did that and I like scraped in by the skin of my teeth and was like, oh Jesus, I best like learn how to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, Cause I'd never, I barely even swept before. I just was like, oh, here we go. Um, that was an epic summer like i did like that was i'd never done an eight before and obviously like the dynamic you get in an eight is like a sort of community unto itself um and obviously i was this like filthy little junior who was like just gobbing off to everyone and being just really annoying and you had these guys who were like some of them were in like the twilight of their careers as, uh, as rowers and just wanted to see if they could get a little red box before they called it a day such a great like place to be in to be able to row with people like that and get that yeah edge off them yeah yeah and it was it was just like you know you, like uh the stern pair both done under 23s as a uh in the eight as, as like stern pair of the eight um i think and so they were like it was a high standard eight um and yeah it was good like we we won a lot throughout that season obviously we like fell at the last hurdle but i think it beat us as well yeah, Matt. Uh, I remember looking at the back of Dave Jones's head. I was in the, uh, like we were so far ahead, I could see the back of his head, and then he obviously beat. He like turned around, I, and that that was actually one of the, the first times I ever thought about joining Leander because obviously you got we'd like thumped you guys, and then you went off to Baniolas and just came back faster than us. And I knew, I kind of had a suspicion that was the case when we raced your ladies' plate eight because it was then that we'd been racing throughout the season. And it was then we'd been having these like epic ding-dongs with, and it was like, 
it's like we didn't even think about you guys it was like those are the guys that we were like we were like their standards and and then we came and we did like a barrier piece with them um and they absolutely drilled us and i remember thinking they've not done that before and and then i was like oh, okay and then i think a lot of things fell into place for us as well like i think that camp was although it's it's always good and it's now almost become infamous you know like, yeah. oh, be, be careful of the leander crew that comes back from from their summer yeah, camp yeah. but um it's like a lot of things happen like we like i said before we got a bit of uh help from from ben lewis yeah because uh, brian wasn't out there and like a few different coaches had had their eye in and ben even sat in in the boat for a little bit at one point and drilled me um we also like like kevin harry was like he's like working full-time on the site so like when we were back at home he was just always knackered and like struggling and obviously when you're on camp it's just like free reign and stuff but i also think like like in the final it's just one of those like we i don't think we'd ever been as fast as we had been in that final. No, no and i think i remember in one of the ladies play eights that we lost um when we went out and raced to cal in the final and just you know like the whole race plan was like we do our thing and they can't beat us unless they do something they've never done before. Yeah. And then they went out and did something they've yeah. never done before. I think it's just one of those races where we got it right. Well, yeah, and I think we had we were very much of the attitude, like, don't mess it up. And immediately when you're, like, avoiding failure, it's like you're you're already on the back foot. That's um, a different thing when you're trying not yeah. to lose. It was like we weren't out there to, like, completely batter you. We were out there to protect what was ours in our eyes. Yeah. And I think that, like, I remember... We, we were rating like 34 through the middle. And and I remember afterwards, my dad said that you guys hadn't dropped below 40 for most of the course. We used to go off at like 40, settle into 38, and then we'd come down to race pace 34, 35. And then we found out, yeah, I found out at the end that Ray just didn't sell. Yeah. He just he just went for it. Yeah. And, like, and there was a point, and I remember like sat behind like Graham and seeing how many times he was like looking for you guys and... I remember just being like, well, the thing is for me, if I, every time I looked at the boat, I nearly caught crap. So I just literally couldn't do that. But, um, but I was heading to coming into the end, like that's what made it a fantastic finish. You only get the best finishes when both crews truly think they can win. Yeah. And, and we, we did like, obviously we, I remember we, you, we were like a length down for most of it. And then it, I think it was what, like three feet at the end or something. And they called it a six, but yeah, yeah, inside of that. Yeah. I mean, I remember I took my last stroke, like looked down, looked across and you were in front. Yeah. So then I was like, I don't I, like I didn't like in one sense like it kind of robbed the victory a little bit because it was yeah, yeah. a place we didn't know we won and that was we also like we like even that it was like we had this we'd practiced to sprint finish as an eight and it's obviously a hard thing to do in an eight but we had this like finish and we practiced it a couple of times and even the fact that we had to use it was like oh what and I remember just yeah that was um I mean in a way though that was like really good as well because yeah. like Henley from that point on changed for me a lot it was like I, I need to go and win this because it's like we came so close and you sort of see the prize giving and stuff like that you're like no I need like, I have to where is that happen? that's the only one I want <laughs> where it's the best one it's a good one and for me it, like uh it was obviously great to win but I always I think like winning you kind of win t- to not think about it and when you lose like you get to kind of run over stuff and like at yeah. the time that's horrible i've also won th- i've also lost three henny finals by real close margins and yeah but you do like it can give the spur you on and kick you on and then obviously for you like yeah it did i do i do think henley is like uh, a a unique event in that respect though because it's like in a six lane race if you're down by length on a or maybe not a length let's say let's say you're down by like half the length on a crew at henley it feels like a mile it is like literally 
and like even the people on the bank they're so close that they can literally see your you putting everything into losing and and yet if you're winning it's like this is awesome like there's literally there's no one in front of you whereas in a six lane race it's like you've got someone else to fight if you're not winning yeah yeah um and it, it i do think that that massively amplifies the sort of emotional aspect of it like what it means to be up what it means to be down yeah and definitely it, it makes it much more of a head game than any other race that we do absolutely like you see in six lane racing where uh someone's pulled out front and then this is kind of a, a battle happening behind them and all yeah. of a sudden these three crews have helped each other get back in the fight yeah and like in henley there's nothing you're on well, your own i mean even even with that though if you're in front of henley and a crew starts che like cheering you up like that is a horrible feeling i've lost from the front and from behind yes uh cool so then the next one yeah like i said uh pair with the great red polar yeah um uh, so that's 2009. Yeah. yeah. So then, so moving on from that year, you said like first, first year of under 23s was the next one. Yeah. So, um, did a bit better that year. There was a bit of a sculling group at that point. We had a, a few guys from Newcastle. You had a Leander quad. So, um, you had a quad of myself, Johnny Walton, a guy called Dave Marshall and John Preston, who was a lightweight. And we were a Reading Loughborough composite and we were basically the top four well we were the three fastest heavyweights outside of the team uh, at finding trials dave i remember dave marsh was absolutely he was a monster yeah, yeah wasn't he um, and then john preston was just a fantastic lightweight and we put this quad out to like try and smash everyone and um it, again it was a leander quad that beat us at henley that year and it was uh jack hockley nick Middleton, phil turnham and david reed Phil Turner, I remember. Yeah, I think it was one of the coaches referred to Phil Turner as the shaven bear. Yeah, yeah, he's a monster of man. <laughs> Didn't he also get told he had to stop doing weights? Yeah, because he was getting too big. Yeah, I remember Rogue doing the fours head with him, and he weighed like 120 kilos. And oh boy, did I feel every one of those. The guy, <laughs> he, was, I, he was a big boy. The guy just looked at a dumbbell and gained muscle. Mass. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So we we ended up we had some like so this was a, a thing sort of tying in with that feeling hard done by is um i we did like some under 23 seat racing in the in the quads and i was a part of that and i remember i got swapped every single run uh, we did eight runs i got swapped every single time and i won every single run and i remember even after that i was like not at all convinced i was going to get put in the boat i was like i had to like go back because i was obviously i was wearing a reading at the time so i Went back down the road to the rowing club, spoke to Don, who was there, and was like, do you think I've done enough? And he sort of laughed at me, but then realized I was being serious and was like, yeah, I think you've done enough. Because you always just worry, like every time I've been in sea racing, because you're constantly thinking, yeah, but if that, but if then that happens and that, and if someone racing me against that, oh my God, I could be out of the team in a second. Yeah, yeah, it was, that, that was, but I mean, yeah, obviously that came good and we got to do that quad and that was, uh, Jack Copley, Nick Milton, me and Johnny Walton. And that was Belarus. Belarus was a fun one. That was a, it was really good fun. And I, I loved that quad. That was like, just the dynamic of that boat was incredible. We were coached by Paul Stannard. Um, and that was like the first time I probably met him. And he like he was awesome then as well. Legend, yeah. Um, I remember that the pre-Worlds camp was just incredible weather. Like yeah. we had mirror flat Caversham, just yeah. session after session. Yeah, it was, it was really good. And I, like, yeah, I mean... I don't know what more to say about it than that. Like we didn't do that well. We, we were like ninth, I think. Um, 
but like that was probably fair like we didn't really have like a tradition of under 23 scrubbing at that point yeah it took a few years for that to come around like that was more like like probably 2015 that that started to really take off well, it takes time doesn't it like yeah so like that was the first couple of years they started putting full squads in and stuff like yeah like we we thought we were really fast because we did six minutes and and now like i think the under 23s are looking to break 540 most of the time now i mean it's, it just moves on so yeah, quickly yeah we talk i remember when i first turned up leander it's like you you got to be sub six and you got to be 97 kilos yeah because i was like 615 and i i was think it was like 90 kilos when i rolled into yeah. leander and then literally like as i ticked over 97 and went sub six i like was calling and was like oh i sort of made it now and he's like no no now you gotta be 555 yeah. 93 kilos yeah yeah, like, I remember he said that to me. He was like, 555 is the new six. And he said it like the day before I first broke six minute. And I was like, you kidding me? Was, uh, that's not fair. Surely you could don't move the goalpost just yet. Yeah, just chasing. Yeah, I was always chasing my tail. Um, yeah, cool. So like, I guess then obviously you did another under trade threes the year after. Yeah, that, um, that was not as good. That were like, we were, I think we had expectation off the back of, so like the year before we'd done well, I then went and won my first Henley 2011 so um like i was at leander that at that point like i joined off the was back of that in the double uh quad quad foot um uh, well, uh yeah uh, prince of wales with jack nick and yeah. al sinclair and um yeah i mean that was that was epic like we we did the banyolas camp we had a great time you guys were in the plate eight and it was like yeah. always just like fighting each other to be top of the sheet every time um and you know that was just like we broke every Henley record in one race, uh, like all the Prince of Wales records, it literally, as we rode that through our final. And I actually, I actually, I never told anyone this, but I actually had the chest infection when I did it as well. Really? Because I was like, like I knew we were gonna, I, well, I, I'd say I knew we were gonna win. Like at that point, I was like pretty certain that we were gonna get it done. But I was like, if I tell anyone I know, I'm out of the boat. And I was well, like- It gets to a certain point where it's like, well, who's, who else is gonna fill in? Yeah. We're good to go. And I remember like after every race, I was having to go like cough my lungs out basically. And um, I would like go to the end of the landing stage when we came back in and cough a load of stuff up. And everyone thought I was just being sick because I like pushed myself so hard. And they were all just like, oh, look at him. He's he's really gone to the well there. It was like, no, I'm just ill. <laughs> but, well, I mean, that speaks to like volumes to like you as an athlete to be like, yeah, I'm, but like, let's put it, let's get it yeah. down. Like, let's get it done. Like, that's the kind of thing that other people just aren't the places where other people aren't willing to go yeah I, well i remember the final as well was like i we went off the start in the final and i'd say by the end of the island i was like i don't even know how i'm going to make the finish line i've gone off so hard because uh, obviously like the the you know when we raced you guys that was the the last final i'd been in was against you and we'd like sort of paddled off and just be left behind and it was like I was never, I was obviously going to learn that lesson. And it was like, so we went off the start and I went so, so hard. And I remember just like counting down blocks of 10 strokes the whole way down the track. Oh, you know, um, you're in trouble when you're down to 10s, yeah. 50s sometimes, but 10s. Yeah. I was, I was in such a bad place. And, but like, you know, we got to um, probably about the, the enclosures. And I was like, they're going to have to do something pretty spectacular to come back at us. And they did make a little charge, but. Uh, they just like fell apart doing it because they left it too late. Yeah. Of all my Henleys that I've won, that was by like far and away the worst rowing I'd ever done to win it. Yeah. It was just that like, it was just sheer determination to not have to watch the prize giving again. Yeah. 
And you still broke every single Henley record on the way. Well, I, I think a part of that was because we put so much in early. Well, I, like, I think we all did, but we all put so much in early on that we like got ahead of the record and just hung on to it the rest of the way. I mean, since then, it's been broken like 15 times, but uh, it's just a bit unfortunate. Yeah, the standards has improved in Prince of Wales massively yeah. over the last few years. Yeah, like our quad, our quad that quad then, like now would struggle to make the weekend, I think. Jeez. Yeah, but you put it in terms of like all the other things that have improved in terms yeah. of like knowledge, nutrition, training, like all and, and and the culture of Scotland as well. I think I think that's that's the big thing for me is like the number of people who were as good as we were there, and there's, there's there's now like five quads worth of people that are that good because they know what they have to do to be that good. Um, yeah, and then crossing the finish line, did you allow yourself to enjoy that win, or did it still feel like you weren't where you wanted to be? No, I, I definitely enjoyed that one. That was a that was a big one. Um, almost to the point where I like had to remind myself that there was under 23s a couple of weeks away yeah I just went like obviously the, that Sunday night was a biblical night in, in um, 2011 I guess that was one that we lost to Harvard was it Harvard by foot I think it was yeah from memory was that the one where there was a bit of shouting going on or was that the year after uh, okay, so t 2012 was Harvard for foot because in 2011 we beat Harvard in the semifinal. Yeah, and we had a huge humdinger. Yeah, and Ben Duggan, who'd been rowing it for around, had a bit of yeah. screamed. I think he screamed retribution. Yeah, at the Harvard crew, uh, and then got told off for it. And then we lost to Brown in the final because we were just done from having mm -hmm. raced Harvard. I mean, it was a good crew as well. But um, yeah. yeah, then the next year they beat us by the crossed, and then two of them screamed it back. Yeah. But it happened to be the two people that I was going to be in a boat with yeah. uh, under 23s. Where it was like Andy Holmes and, and Pat, yeah. who came to live in my house for the first week before we went to camp. So that yeah. was like a little bit tense. Yeah, yeah, I bet. I don't know. Things, you know, it's difficult on the finish line. Emotions come out. Yeah. yeah. It happens. Yeah. Cool. So then moving on, obviously, like from under 23s, I think like then was that, that 2012 year that we were involved in the... Yeah, there was the Olympic, squad. Olympic year. Um, and that was where it was like right if we sort ourselves out like we'll be in line yeah i mean that actually that year started really badly for me because you remember we used to do those uh remember we used to do those 3k time trials at leander yeah, and banksy then changed them to 6ks and even a couple of times 9ks with quick spins with quick spins and i remember on one of those getting beaten on time by rachel gamble flint and it was just because i wasn't great at long distances and i not wasn't great at low rates and and she was really good at both. They were always rate capped, yeah. I remember just being like, this is this is horrific. And then Banksy took me aside and was like, what's going on? Like, why are you? This would probably be around Christmas time. He's like, this is, you're embarrassing yourself. I was like, it's getting to the point where I don't think you should skull anymore. And I was like, Banksy, like we're doing these 9Ks. I'm just bad at them. He's like, give me some 2Ks. Sure enough, we come back after Christmas and there's 2Ks on the program. And suddenly I'm like back in the mix again. If you were losing losing to to Rachel Gamblefield, I'd hate to know where I was. I mean, I I think I was losing to pretty much everyone. I just I remember I remember again like we used to have under twenty three gold medal times. Yeah, and I was just fighting, fighting, fighting to get, and I finally got myself up to like a decent like percentage on under twenty three, and then again they were like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Yeah, like under twenty three times destroyed. Yeah. I don't know if that was like to do the Sinkoviches. I mean, when they like yeah. one under 23s and then senior worlds in yeah. the same year and everyone was like yeah no this you can't do that anymore yeah um but yeah no that year it started it was it was a tough year to start with but then once you got into the groove of it it was like okay we're gonna target a double and then 
there was like who's going to be in the double and you had like a few, you obviously had like Wilco it was uh Tom Wilkinson was doing the was sculling then mm. uh you had obviously Jack Copley was around you had Nick Middleton Dave Reed uh and all those boys who uh oh and you had um do you remember Zimbo Jamie uh, McKenzie I think his name was and he yeah he was sweeping there wasn't he he was involved in that sweep group uh, yeah but then he went in the quad for some reason I think he had a back yeah it was a problem with his back yeah uh, but so so yeah we had this uh, and uh, me and Al ended up being in the double being coached by Chris Colleton and the two of us just got on really well with Chris like he like I, he he was sort of one of these Marmite characters that some people just really didn't like him uh, but I was I just the way he was just so brutal about like how you're rowing just that really got you know worked well for me yeah i like that it was, it's not what you want it's what you need yeah and uh, the amount of times he would just like completely dress me down and i'd have to be like oh, okay well i best sort of this stuff out would he do like you know me and webby in a pair like for 2k on the far side he just shout no like in yeah. every stroke and like 2k like yeah. no no yeah no nearly better no yeah oh <laughs> I mean, yeah that's brutal to row along with i remember even so when me and our race tenley that year we we beat we raced this dutch double in the in the first round it was on the friday because we were seeded because we were winning like met and marlow by like yeah. 45 seconds yeah um and yeah we raced this dutch double i remember thinking they'd be really good and so we went off the start like a rocket and by the end of the island had clear water and i was like oh all right and so we like went through the steps to like chill out and all that and afterwards Chris had been in the launch and he like put the video up on the screen in the gym and just proceeded to like completely tear us to pieces and I was like he just absolutely destroyed these guys and I feel like I've lost um but that mentality actually like meant that every it wasn't about even about winning at this point and it was just about like demolishing whoever we were racing and doing it perfectly and I think that definitely helped me a lot as in terms of like an attitude. I was like, I, that really worked well with me. So it's like elevating your standards, isn't it? It's like making you question everything, even when you've won, like, yeah. what could we improve? What could we improve? And like, and then also like, you never really, it's difficult to like view yourself as, as good as you are sometimes until you kind of have those races to prove it to yourself. Like you said, yeah. like, oh, we're nowhere near these guys. And then it's like, oh no, actually like, yeah kind of burst through that ceiling that you'd set for yourself but i do i do actually think later on that's come back to bite me a little bit because it was that attitude at leander of like win everything by as much as you possibly can that was really good but like i really struggled to shake that off it's like if i have an opportunity to win by more i will more often than not take it instinctively and actually nowadays it's i'm racing guys who are so good that if i do that to them one round the next round they'll destroy me because i've spent all my pennies yeah and it's like what i have to do to do that is is too much and so i'm not i'm not quite as savvy at, at racing as like some of the guys who maybe weren't brought up in that culture i like i've i've, I've re almost never really you know to wrap my head around it it's just like if i can have more i'll take it and um it's just like a racer mentality i guess i know yeah. that's it's the double-edged sword that's what got you to where you are so like you can't yeah and I, I do think like in a in sort of a world champs format or um or something like that where you know it's like it's just about that one race or Henley format where it's just that one race in a day that's fine but obviously like at some point you've got to get selected and things like that and in those scenarios i've that doesn't do me many favors 
I remember uh, Chris Carl was the first time I we were doing like catch deals and uh, uh, with I was with a guy running with Nathan Hillier. Yeah, and doing under three pair. And Chris just screaming from the bank like Nathan, you're shaking like a shitting dog <laughs> at the catch. Like sort it out. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other one was that me and Weber in the pair. And we were running up on the far bank and I we just hear Colin go like I was like, Webby, did you get that? And he's like, nah. What should we do? Just pull harder. So like pull harder for three strokes. And then we hear like yeah. good change. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're just like, oh that will do. Big ten. Oh, there we go. He likes that. Yeah. yeah. More power. But uh, I mean, that was, yeah. So that was like the spring, that sort of summer. Because um, obviously, yeah, we then went from that Henley campaign into a quad for Europeans, which was the like springboard team. It was basically like if you were in that team, you were probably going to go to the squad after after the Olympics. So that was the sort of my spring, that Henley women was my springboard into that team in a quad. Um, it was, Al was meant to be, Al Sinclair was meant yeah. to be in that quad, but then he broke his foot. So, he actually then had to come back in sort of the hard way. But um, so Dan Ritchie came into that, who'd been doing a pair all summer. Um, and so, yeah, we had, and that was great. That was me, Johnny, Nick, and uh, Dan Ritchie. And that was my first like senior international experience. And that was such an eye opening experience. Like the level of intensity at senior racing was just massive having raced like met regatta and you'd go off and 250 in it's like and relax yeah and in a in this quad it was like get to 250 in and do go harder it's like you've just done a start and you get to 250 and then it's like in order to transition to a good pace you have to then attack and i was like i've got 1750 meters of like absolute misery to come and you're telling me right now is when i've got to attack and it's like yep I remember the summer we did the, I was in the eight for that one. Where did you finish? Seven. Yeah, we came with. So we, we in the semi, we were just up on Russia, who were the world record, who had broken the world record that year in Lucerne. And we like just missed out. But Johnny afterward owned up that he basically thought we were at 250 to go, at 500 to go, and had sold his soul. And obviously then run out of gas and, um, it was literally like a foot in it that we missed out on the A final by. Uh, it's like you said, it's just brutal racing. Like I remember for a lot of that race, we were we was we were like Henry was telling us, you know, in the running for third, and like it was very much like a blanket or whatever. And we were like, yeah, yeah, okay, we're gonna see if we can get a medal, get a medal, and then cross the finish line. It's like, oh, you came through. And I'm like, yeah. what? Like how? Yeah. But it's just like I like said, the intensity rate. Yeah. That whole summer, I was struggling. I I was worried that i was like one of the last guys in the boat as well and i remember like we're doing we had telemetry stuff on that on the boat yeah, yeah. we're doing a session like telemetry's on like obviously i was like working hard yeah and then like christian sits me down at the end of the session it's like your power's like down on everyone's like you're not working hard enough so then i spent like the whole summer like wearing it like ut1 plus yeah in all our sessions and just like like yeah the level again like a real eye-opener to be like oh this is this is going up again yeah and yeah. then, do you remember? Get, do you remember when you got the email from Tana? Because I, I, I went on holiday after that. I went to Turkey. I yeah, I was like sat sat in a cafe and, and I looked at my phone. I just had some Wi-Fi. Looked at my phone. It's like, oh, yeah, Tana. yeah. No, I do remember that. I was actually like, that was a point I was actually thinking about calling it a day because obviously it came quite late uh, and we hadn't done that well. And I remember being like, oh, it's they, they, it's maybe not happening for me. Like maybe some of the guys are carrying on. I don't know. Like there's a. Uh, potential you know there wasn't the, the the sculling team at that time wasn't that old so 
maybe they would loads of them carry on and i was like thinking about calling it a day at that point and then obviously like pretty much on the day where i was like yeah i think i'm gonna stop that was when um tanner i got the email i was like okay maybe not yet then i think that was also like fascinating to hear like a guy who's been to two olympics to be like i might call it we are not gonna get there yeah it was i think it was one of those things where it's like yeah yeah i couldn't what more can i do at this point like yeah, so it was kind of like, well, if I haven't done it yet, then when, how, what am I going to possibly be able to do to convince them that I need to be in? But actually, they'd already decided it was just that they hadn't told me yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that, and then that began the new intense, insane level of, you yeah. know, taking it up again and wearing a cabochon. Yeah, I, that first year was awful. Like I had a really bad year as well. Yeah, it was just like so hard what didn't help was that sydney world cup like it was doing the training at caversham it was like i could i felt like i was maybe improving especially when banksy got involved and he started coaching me a bit more like he was a good coach and he like with him i started to see improvements but then we went i got put in the double with pete lambert for the sydney world cup and i we went there and it was obviously like hotter than the sun because it was like uh, march in in australia and and then also and i'm convinced jürgen did it because we were being watched by a load of australian australian institute of sports people mm. it was like we had these weight sessions there which was like someone had just made up this circuit which was the hardest thing known to man it was like jump squats with 80 kilos and it was like 400 pulling reps and you know like a hundred reps on bench pull with 50 kilos wow. and, and and you had to do them all in a few as few sets as possible you just had like a total rep number to hit and um i remember yeah do like doing all of that and i the so the first three days of rowing i couldn't do because i was so sore from the circuit that i actually couldn't physically sit in the boat and I got, I like developed these like savage shoulder pains and it turns out that I'd torn the cartilage in my shoulder and I had tendonitis in both directions in my shoulder. It is impra and supraspinatus, both had, I both had tendonitis there. And then when final trials came around and I just got absolutely filled in at a time trial because I felt like my shoulder was about to like come out of the socket. And I was just like, this is just not, like, I'm just not ready for this at all. Yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal stuff. Yeah, I struggled a lot with my back. It was actually, my back went just before the Pairs Matrix. Yeah. And um, Banks got Al, Al Sinclair to fill in. Yeah. And that, because that was how, that was how Al got into the team. Yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I was, yeah. So he obviously didn't get in because of his broken ankle. But which, then, ever, which was like bullshit. Because everyone yeah. was like, oh, he, he should be here. Yeah. But then, so then he had to come down and sub in for something. I think it might have actually been in doing a double with me to do pieces with some other doubles Dude. and like obviously that was great because we'd done a double and um but then i remember that it was like he should have then gone back to the club like i think they almost told him to go back to the club and he then just decided you know what i'll just go turn up at cabochon every day and it was like did he i thought because i think i from my memory being like yeah I, my back went i remember like i went into my just like at the end of an ergo it just gone yeah. like i was obviously just on the end of my tether yes uh and then like um the physio saw me it's like there's no way you can go rowing and then physio has a fight with christian because christian's like he's got permic his matrix in two days like he has to go out yeah and the physio's like you're not getting me like he's, this isn't bad yeah and like i went i went in for scleronian injections then after that one but um 
Yeah, and then Al, Al got the call up. Yeah, and then won it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was yeah. So he was floating around. It was like one day he'd skull. Yeah. One day he'd row stroke side. One day he'd row bow side. And then all of a sudden, there's this opening in the pairs matrix, and it's like, well, it looks like you're rowing bow side in this pairs matrix. And then he, yeah, and then he went and won it, and it was like, which probably put you in a boat. And yeah, but and then that because he'd just done almost exclusively sculling up to that point. Yeah, yeah, he'd done well. He'd done yeah two years of sculling and. Yeah, he was well, probably even longer than two years of scrum, but he was like obviously a, an established scholar, but had done the, the play and the visitors and all of that. So he he'd done enough sweet that he could just hop in and go without looking like too much of an outsider. He's always been one of those guys that like um, always like shone in the boat, like technically, yeah, like yeah. a front. Like I always remember in my time, it's like Webby, like he would just get shot on the whole year, like your scores aren't good enough, yeah. your weights aren't good enough. Seat racing turns up like, oh, this kick them right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Without, yeah, I remember. I, so, one of my worst ever fours heads was with Alice Sinclair and with Matt Gottrell, and who's obviously now an Olympic champion, and uh, Lance Trudell. We did this four, and it was awful. <laughs> like, it was just like we couldn't go in a straight line because we were like not rowing in time, and it we were just dead slow. It was super heavy, but we had Al at bow, and so it was like you could put a spirit level on the boat, and it. It was like the most balanced, awful boat I've ever been in my life. And I was like, that just sums him up. It's like, he'll he'll do his job really well, even if you're not doing yours. And that was just like, that, and that's basically how he like made it into the team. But yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I I, would, I don't envy him coming in that way, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a hard way to, but I mean, it's not exactly like either of us came in, came in at the top either. Like, no, it's a fight, yeah. fight on your way up. But he, like, I mean that, so like I was sort of having this conversation today, like that whole scenario so obviously getting dropped i then got dropped from the team after final trials and that actually then started like a snowball which i think ended up doing me like the biggest favor of my career well we did that summer on homeless program yeah so so then me and nick went back to leander and the thought of like sculling was like just we were just no we're like gonna go in a pair and just like because we, we've never really done it give it a go and so we started doing some sweeping just because we didn't want to scull because we were basically traumatized from getting absolutely battered in sculling. And then, so we then did the latest plate eight that year and that was where I got my third Henley medal. Um, and that was, that, again, that was an epic summer. I did a couple of World Cups in it. Just, it was one of those like cool eights to be a part of and just, yeah, just great fun. And like, I, I got selected for that boat and then my back popped. Yeah, yeah, I remember that and the other thing was is you had other guys who didn't make the boat as well like Paul Bennett didn't make the boat like Olympic champion Paul Bennett didn't make the boat and I, I do wonder like would we have gone faster had he been in it um, and then like Fody wasn't putting it either no Fody wasn't in no Fody ended up in the pair with Ollie Cook didn't he yeah because it was it was supposed to be Fode and Gottrell do the pair yeah and me and then I was in the eight and then Fody got it, me and Fody both got hurt. Yeah. So Gottfried gets put in the eight, started moving really well, like, yeah. obviously. So they stuck with yeah, it. And then, yeah. Yeah. Then me and Fode did the did the pair in Lucerne as a spare. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then in seat racing, I think I got pipped by Ollie and then him, him and Ollie ended up going. Yeah. But we, yeah. So we, we did that. We did that eight and that was obviously great. And then, but then off the back of that, we don't then go to Worlds. So whilst everyone was at Worlds, and this is what I was talking about today, because we obviously did some intervals today, but. I we then I did this program with uh, so Mark Homer, the physiologist, basically did like a bit of a, an experiment with interval training, and so I'd spent the summer doing this like mad program, the crazy some of them sessions, 
I was the one I was talking about was the twelve two fifties yeah. ten seconds rest. Yeah, a minimum like rate a minimum rate cap of forty, and that was just like nothing like yeah. any other training we had done. No, I remember just like like going in the gym and then obviously it's horrific, but then being like, is that it? Like, yeah, I've been here twenty minutes. Like that's yeah. the session. I'm like, yeah, that's but the session. I was saying it like that. So the highest lactate I've ever recorded and the highest heart rate I've ever recorded was in that one session where I got twenty one point six millimoles of lactate. I basically was like. Like if you if you took my blood out of my body and injected into it in a normal person, it would kill them. <laughs> like uh, battery acid. Yeah, <laughs> I was literally one of those, like a one of those things of alien. Like if, like if you stabbed me, I'd melt a hole in the floor. Um, and, and yeah, I was like, but yeah. So off the back of that, we then come back. We had like a week off before we've got to start training again because we did the hands cup as well that year. And so everyone else comes back from their three week break, having had a nice holiday and all this sort of stuff. And so we were like piping hot at that point. And Jürgen decides we're all going to go into singles for the autumn to do like a couple of races and stuff like that. Uh, but like obviously interspersed with that is like some crew boat stuff. And at that point, I'm a sweeper because I'm, I've am i been in this eight. Um, so I did a few sweep sessions and then, but then got some good sculling results uh, because I was like super race ready having done all of this stuff, which is brilliant because I'm like suddenly in the mix, like I'm beating like good established scullers um, and I'm like not far off the top of the pile and it's like oh this is great um, and so Jürgen put me back in sculling and and then that Christmas I got injured and I was like uh, I like my first proper injury basically my only like serious injury since I've started rowing basically what was that? Uh, bulgy disc um, and I was at L4, L5? yeah, L, uh, L5, S1 oh I've, I've done both um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I remember we did like the crew boat testing and all of that, which went really well uh, just before Christmas. And then I went, yeah, you know, went on Christmas break. And I had all these good intentions to train over Christmas. And I woke up on the first day of the Christmas break with shooting pains in my legs. And I was like, oh, hopefully that'll, hopefully this will go away. And uh, like Jurgen had told me just before we went away that I was going to be going to South Africa on training camp. It was my first South Africa. And it was like, oh, they could only take like the core of the team to that camp. And if you weren't part of the core of the team, you'd go to Sierra Nevada. And I was like, I'd got invited to South Africa. So I was like super chuffed. And I was like, I need to be okay to go. And I, so I basically just like did no training over that Christmas, just lay on my back. For, and sure enough, turned up on the first day back. It was like the 20K ergo because it was too windy out. Did it and was like, I'm not okay. When saw Anne Redgrave and she did um, this test on me where she like pulled my feet down. And when she pulled on my left foot, my left foot just collapsed completely and I just could not do anything with it. And she was like, you're not going on camp. Yeah. And so then Jürgen comes and finds me and he was like, okay. Uh, like he almost straight out the gate said to me, we've got, we're going away on camp in February. Uh, it's like middle to end of February. And this is, this is like in the new year. And he's like, that's when I want you back on the program. And it's like, so I had like nearly two months, well, yeah, nearly two months to sort myself out. And it was like, I don't need that long. Like, I'll be back. And he's like, no, no, you just take your time. Like, like fix what you need to fix. He's like, sort your sculling out. See if you can improve your technique. Like, do what you need to do to be to to be the best you can be. Not just recover, but to also be the best you can be. Yeah. And so then I spent the next two months just land training. And, like, it completely revolutionized my physiology doing that because... I was like, there were some days I was spending three and a half hours sat on a static bike, just staring out of the lake. And, and it was just like, it's the most soul destroying thing you'll ever do. But like, 
I just knew that it was like, like it revolutionized my weights. It revolutionized my, my ability to do the program. I was like, like, even though I was still sore afterwards, I still had a sore back in terms of being able to do the program and survive it. I was like, from then on, I've just been bulletproof ever since. That's what it's all about, surviving that program, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think, I always said this before, I think, I always think like, I've got fitter on the bike because when you mimic the sessions that you're doing on the yoga, but you're on the bike and you're never rate capped, so yeah. you almost like can work harder or yeah. work at that higher intensity. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jürgen, obviously for me and my back, like Jürgen's program didn't necessarily like work fantastically yeah. for me. Like I, I wasn't as unbreakable. Yeah. Um, but one thing I will say for him, like he, he, he definitely had his like finger on the pulse like way more than you would think yeah because yeah. on a general day in training he would kind of wander around maybe like wouldn't say a lot to you like if you're in singles like one little comment or whatever you sort of think like oh he doesn't i like, maybe doesn't know but like if you speak to him about like he knew like he i remember when like, under 23s like me and will like had a conversation the first time we went into Sierra Nevada. it's like he knew like what we'd done what we hadn't done our scores and stuff and you were like okay that's that's impressive he had his favorites who he spoke to a lot and he had like his like almost the opposite of that the people he just didn't bother speaking to and and they had they led the rough existence and then you had everyone else who was like in this sort of gray zone and that was me yeah. um and once every like few weeks you'd be going through to do like third session on the ergo or something and he would just be like hovering by the door to the ergo room and he'd just like grab you by the arm like grab me by the arm and he'd be like okay john sings are going word and he'd be like are you okay sometimes you do not have to go so hard all the time and you'd be like, all right, yeah. And it's like, just that little bit of like an attitude check. And you knew you were on the right path. He didn't say a lot, but what he said, you listened. Yeah, and and that was like, just that, he always would time it right. It's like at the point where you're like, am I doing this right? That he would then come up to you and be like, you go, well, this is, you've had a good block. Keep, yeah. keep doing what you're doing. Or, or he would like be like, just a bit of this or a bit of that. and. I think also looking back, like ultimately the program was designed to, to win medals at the Olympics. Like yeah. it's not about, there's a lot of, obviously like there is a lot about going to the Olympics and just getting there. It's like a huge yeah. thing. But his program was like, you're not here just to go. Like yeah. you're all here because you want to win medals. So like, yeah. here's the program that you need to do to win a medal. So yeah. for me, it's like, yeah, my body isn't, isn't going to keep up with it. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong program. Yeah, for sure. And, and also like the way he applied that on us as well like the sort of I, I don't think he knew his own genius in terms of like the environment he created and the, the the athletes that created I don't even think he realizes how much genius he actually had I think it was just this like feeling he had that he like applied to what he did yeah. and at the end of it he got a, a whole like truckload of gold medals and it was kind of like, oh, just, you know, a bit more of that then and a bit less of this and we'll do the same again. And and that was how he worked. But actually, like when you break down some of his practices, especially from like a psychological perspective, like the the way he would, the mentalities he would generate is things like he would be like, it does not have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough. Like you, you almost never hear like coaches talk like that. It's like, it just has to be good enough. And and it, that's that kind of then shifts how you think about like let's say you're in a race like you've got 240 strokes the chances are like a good percentage of those will be awful or like relatively awful and so then actually going like doesn't matter i've got another one to do like it changes entirely how you perceive 
your race to be going just by having that attitude. Yeah, I think that's interesting what you said about him, like not even realizing. I think you see that. I think that's quite common in people who are really good, at, like naturally good at stuff. Yeah. So you'll be like, do you realize how good you are at doing that? Yeah. And like they almost don't because it's come naturally to them. But then I think that worked against him as well. Like later on when he, so like he used to, like you say, he used to walk up and down in the ergo room and like look in the whites of your eyes whilst you're on the ergo. And he like, he kind of knew us all as individuals. But then obviously he got put in charge of the women as well. And uh, like once Tomo left and when that happened, that extra distance that was created, like uh, for me, that was when like it, things didn't go as well. And obviously like, yeah, I mean, we didn't have a great Olympiad pre Tokyo. And I do think a big part of that was the fact that he was moved away from his genius. Like it was almost like he's promoted away from his his area of competence, like the things he did well, mm -hmm. he couldn't he, he couldn't do those. And then, like his you know his sort of organisational like number crunching stuff, like yeah, he was good at that, but that's not his genius. That was like he did that well. He didn't do that great, and what he did really well was um, read people and know people. And as soon as he lost touch with that, it was like okay, we don't have the guy we once knew anymore. So I think like talking about knowing people, like let's get into the hand of Jürgen because this was always, I don't know how many people will still have heard of this, but I remember like speaking, I remember James Orm telling me the first time when he got the hand of Jürgen. As in the tap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so clearly the hand of Jürgen as in like, obviously the Diego Maradona hand of God being like how, how he like got the football in, but you know, it was referred to as the hand of Jürgen and like, just like, because you didn't just get it because you would tie it. Like you, I, I think you got it, didn't you? I got it. I got it twice yeah oh yeah twice twice uh once was a second hand hand of yogurt where someone else yeah so mark earnshaw he gave mark earnshaw the nod to give me the tap and i hated him for that because it was a 20k ergo in sierra nevada and i was pulling a 203 um what would what would your normal score be at well, sea level like 150 yeah uh, but up there well, that was my first one of those. So okay. that was basically every ergo for me. I think my camp average was like a 156. I remember I was, I think I was on that one. I think yeah. I was on that one. I think I was on the bike. That's when I was injured. I was on the bike. Yeah. So I was just sat watching people suffer. Yeah. And, and it was my first continuous 20K where I thought I was going to make the finish line without having to like split it or anything. Yeah. And I was, my, my average was, uh, yeah, my average was 203. And I was like, I didn't care. I was rating like 22 and you're not allowed to rate over 20 and I just didn't care. And with like 700 meters to go, Mark Earnshaw comes over having got the nod from Jürgen because I'm flopping around like God knows what. And he taps me and I literally like, you know, the, the analogy I use for that is like, you know, you get those like wooden statues that they're using like uh, artists use and it's like you change the shape of them and then you like push the button underneath them and all the elastic in them goes loose and they collapse. Yeah. It's literally like, as soon as Mark Earnshaw's hand touched me, I was just like collapsed in a heap. And I like nearly, bur I think I actually did burst into tears at that point. Cause I was literally like, I thought I'd made it. And, but like the, it literally took nothing for me to stop because I was just so broken by that point. Uh, I think when James Orm told me he, he got it, uh, like sort of first session, some 18 K or something, and he was just absolutely done hanging gets the tap like uh so like finishes stretches goes back to his room and then the second session like comes down as a car said you know what am i doing now am i like stretching or something and they're like no no 20k get on like you only got the tap for one session mate they get back on it now yeah though yeah in that respect there wasn't a lot of mercy 
the other thing I wanted, uh, I would find funny is like some of the funniest things that Jürgen said in like his uh, his race warm up. Well, so uh, uh, sort of warm um, pre race speech. Well, so th this is a thing. Um, fast forward a little bit to um, doing the the running challenge after Tokyo. So Kevin Dutton, the guy I was doing it with, he's a professor of psychology, and um, we've done like a lot of work together, and we like talk about a lot of things. He's like fascinated by Jurgen, obviously. Uh, but one of the things we came up with was a, uh, a essentially a game where if someone were to say to you that they trained in the squad under Jurgen, what question could you ask that where their answer would determine for sure? That yeah. you, you you'd know that had they been in the team under Jurgen, yeah, to prove it, and uh, it was like, what does the man have? A hammer, yeah. What then? What color is the machine? I don't know if I remember that. The gray machine. Gray machine, yeah. Machine. No, I knew that. And uh, there's a couple of others. What type of signs do we use? Do you remember that one? Were you around then? We're, oh, wait, wait, no, this, is, this is not the. This is we all. They're all men, they all boil in water. No, like we always used to call it normal signs, didn't we? When Jürgen came up with like some physiology that like you, you kind of like, I don't know if the science behind that's entirely accurate, but Jürgen's decided it is, so we'll do it. I remember that. I remember women saying like, you know, you don't have to worry about the competition. We're all men. We all boil in water. <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking like, I think technically he is right, but and I'm not is, sure how that helps. There is also a... Uh, Obviously, the saying is Rome was not built in a day, and he used to say London wasn't built in a day. Like, I mean, sure it wasn't, but um, when the blackness comes, yeah, and when the man with the hammer, yeah, is beating on your legs, like he's pretty the same ones. I yeah, I love that stuff. But yeah, so we came up with this game, and every time, so when we were doing that, every time a rower would like come and join us, it's like you'd ask them a question, one of these questions, and we'd then ask them to contribute a question, um, and yeah, that. So he had a lot of things like that. I think it was um, Noddy who told me that he once said, uh, in preparation for a 2K yoga, he was like, uh, you know, you have to go to a place that you've never been. Sometimes you will finish the yoga and you will not remember if you're a man or a woman and you'll have to look in your all-in-one chair. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard that one now, right? Yeah. Have you heard of that? I, I, I mean, I... Yeah, I, I don't think I've heard that one, but I'm, I know that Jürgen's on Noddy about his ergo quite a bit, and so that does not surprise me. <laughs> oh, oh, cool. So then I guess um, the next one to get into really is is uh, the Olympics. Mm. Um, it's taken us a while to get there, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, how was that year in the in the, in the the lead-up into it? You were having going well or struggling? Or... Yeah, so I mean, I guess that whole thing was like a three-year thing. Uh, like we did the Dublin 2014, we were like in some A finals and then won the B final at Worlds. 2015 was a much harder year. We made one A final. Um, and we liked. So you did in the circuit each year, all the World Cups, World Champs. Yeah, yeah. Injuries. We lost Henley, yeah, lost Henley in 2014 to the Lightweights, won Henley in 2015 against the Lightweights. Um, weirdly enough, the Lightweights who beat. So we lost to the French lightweights in 2014. At that Worlds, they lost to the South African lightweights. And then in 2015, we beat the South African lightweights. And so I was like, this is all a bit roundabout, but... Um, it goes to show like, how important it is. Like, yeah. You're not always on. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so like we had this... I think that, yeah, me and Johnny just had this like sort of dog-like attitude where we were just chasing after it the whole time. And we we had a lot of like bad results we struggled a lot and 
but one of the, we it just like never once dented our enthusiasm and so we did always have in our mind you know the olympics was always there we were always going to go for it we were always going to like you know it was always like what we were here for um and as a double as well like we you know like when we were on form we were like comparatively good on percentage compared to the quad which was a medal winning boat and it was like so you know we fancied our own chances um and then so 2016 year started and we made we a final europeans in brandenburg which was like the most biblically bad conditions i'd ever rode in it was like a we were like a, over a minute off the world record um and that was just horrible and off the back of that banksy was really nervous that we were going to get seat raced because uh, you had jack and uh, jack beaumont and nick middleton were floating around in a double and they were going well and um off the back of that banksy was like if you don't go well in lucerne you're going to be seat raced and so we're going to switch you around because john you've not rode the stroke seat basically ever and johnny you've not really rode the bow seat basically ever and if you do seat racing now and you haven't rode in the other seats you're you're going to be at a serious disadvantage and he was like so we're going to switch it around for lucerne and it was like all right and obviously that was a lot of pressure and we were also racing jack and nick in lucerne and we both got put into the rep and they were in the lane next to us in the rep and it was like oh this is here we go this is basically our olympic selection right here and my the thing is for me in the stroke seat at that point i, I couldn't pace a race so i i was like working at the same level of intensity i was working at in the bow seat but in the stroke seat if you do that you put yourself at very high risk but you're still working hard when you're in that seat but in terms of like your perceived effort it's a bit different um whereas like in the bow seat you just kind of jump onto the red line and stay there um it's a bit harder to like blow yourself up whereas in the stroke seat it's really easy and i still was managing that but in this case what that meant was that we just took off like a rocket and just like rode away from the field and got like like two or you know we had like a length of clear water over some pretty handy doubles as well but obviously jack and nick were one of them and um yeah beat them like they came back at us a little bit at the end but by that point we had it in the back and it was a, like a horrifically painful race because i'd gone off like that but also it was probably what was called for and then pete lambert in the quad got food poisoning and so Jack went into the quad for the final. He got a silver medal to be fair to him. But then um, he then came into the double like an hour later to race the final. And obviously, having just won a medal at the World Cup in a, in a quad, then getting into a boat for another final, they like didn't even feature it in that race. And so oh, like, I think we came, we, yeah, we came fifth. It wasn't a great final for us, but it was like we'd secured our Olympic selection with that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember... Uh that come out of Facebook so I remember your dad being very very happy yeah actually. yeah obviously um but I mean, we we held on to the back like we got a bit of a bollocking from Banksy there because it was like the gap between us and the medals was quite big and people would look at that and think we can fill that gap um but you know that was that was that basically and then and 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 so this sort of ties in with how I got to know Kevin um was so on on that trip to Lucerne I bought a book at the airport called the good psychopath's guide to success written by kevin and andy mcnab um and it was basically like uh, like arguing that uh well not arguing but like stating that um certain psychopathic personality traits can be good for high performing people yeah 
Uh, and, you know, that sort of like mixing desk of personality, like if you can dial some things up when it's time to do business, it's like, that's a good thing. And it, it did really change my mentality as to like racing and things like that. Like the idea of being like completely ice cold, even like obviously like when you are putting so much of yourself physically into something, it's very, very hard to be like completely like have that complete mental clarity in that ice cold sort of attitude and actually like oh, so I read this book between Lucerne and uh, Poznan which was the final World Cup and I like really stuck like we, we kept the order that way around uh, so I stayed at stroke and we we went off to Poznan and, and like a lot of the stuff we've been doing I, I'd like that that book had really like struck a chord with me and like I was feeling very like a lot more confident in my like mental approach to things and it was like, oh, this is uh, like, I felt quite excited to race because I was like, it's not just a shot in the, like, you know how when you sat on the start line, there's a lot of questions running through your head. Like up until that point, I was just kind of hoping that I had the right answer. Whereas like having read that book, it was kind of like, oh, actually, I think I've got an idea now which direction I need to go in. And um, we made the final by the skin of our teeth. But it was like we had like a really bad row and we didn't like try that hard it was like a bit like of a wet it was a bit of a wet race back to again massive bollocking yeah. he's like you could have won that semi and instead you just crept into the final he's like yeah but I, and I said to him at the time i was like look this is the first time we've ever made an a, a final without having to completely bury ourselves yeah. and i was like it's the first time i've ever turned up like tomorrow we've got a final when i'm actually excited I'm not dreading the fact that I've got to do that again. And he was like, well, you best put your money where your mouth is then. And I was like, all right. And sure enough, the next day we had, we won our first ever international medal. And it wasn't just, we didn't just win it. We led the race from the start of the race till about three strokes to go when the Kiwis got through us. <clears throat> and it's like an epic race. Like when I watch it back now, I'm just like, I can't believe we actually ever did that. Cause it was like, there was a point where we had clear water on the field and it's like you, it's guys like Robbie Manson Olaf Tuft um, the French double who are now Olympic champions like the, they're like quality quality crews and we just made them look so average in that race in that one race obviously like they came back at us at the end but for a large part of the race it was like we were just in a different class that's awesome and I think like goes to show like you said a three year build up and the struggle you had with it it's like the path to greatness is, is paved in yeah. failure. It's absolutely awash with it. Yeah. There's no way to get through that point without. Yeah. And and that was the thing as well, is, is at that point, it wasn't then like, sit back, we got a medal. That was almost like did the opposite. It was like, we, we had um, three days off after that. And then we went away to Silvretta and we got a bus from Silvretta to Berezi. Um, and then we came back for a bit before going off to Rio and that it was like what six five six weeks to the Olympics from that regatta and we, it was literally like the most hyper focused block of training I've ever done in my life like the way we were like it was like we've got this potential to win a medal <clears throat> like there was only the um Lithuanian well I say only it was the Lithuanians the um and the Croatians that were missing that were like the serious contenders we'd beaten everyone else and it's like if we do this perfectly we can win a medal and we did it perfectly and it was like we you know we in, in all the time time pieces and stuff we were like right there with the four and the eight 
and we knew that they were going to win and so if we were there and like that was brilliant and um then we did the final speed order before the olympics and in that we did 603 which as far as i understand i might be wrong about this but i'm pretty sure i've not found any evidence to the contrary yet i think is the fastest time a bridge double's ever done um and we were just like like literally on fire at that point and then obviously we go to rio and and then the heat of the olympics we were racing and at one point johnny actually had to stop rowing because it was so rough yeah. i thought we were going to fall in we crossed an entire lane because of one one wave and you're like and we like i think we came last in the heat and i remember being like after all of that we're like in this situation and it's like i can't believe this is li like literally as i'm racing i'm like i'm literally training my whole life for this and i can barely keep the boat upright um so we had to go through the rep and then the rep was a bit better and we won the rep and we we're like okay and it was like the semi draw came out and we literally had the semi of death and it was like fuck's sake we've got the croatians we got um tufta and kettle borsch we had the kiwis who'd beaten us in poznan yeah. we had uh the bulgarians who knocked us out of the a final at europeans the year before and at worlds the year before that like every time we'd race them in assembly they'd knocked us out of the final and the other double was the australians who were two silver medalists from the quad the year before and that was a lineup yeah and banksy said to us beforehand he was like um he was like guys you've got this race if you do what you've always done you're not going to make the final so you've got to do something you've never done before <laughs> and we were like we were like are you fucking kidding me like you, you're telling us we're going to change the plan right before the biggest race of our lives and he was like what you're going to do is you're going to do your last 500 in the third five years yeah classic hail mary and i was like i was like to be fair he's got a point like he's he's got a point like we've We've got to give it a go because yeah, like, you don't want to cross with anything left. Yeah, like if we do what we've always done, he's probably right. We probably come like fourth or fifth in, in that, and like with a with a solid row, we would come fourth or fifth. With an exceptional row, we were going to make it through. <clears throat> and um, sure enough, we like like I, I was just an absolute mess before that race. I was literally like I couldn't even talk. I was so scared. Um, and then obviously like as soon as the puzzle goes it's just like ice cold and we did it we we said we like we got to halfway and it was like right here we fucking go like it, you literally like stood on the edge of a cliff and you go right then just take a head first dive off it and see what happens and um we were in like fourth i think at halfway maybe third just but like it was like us and the kiwis third and fourth like on the line basically and then yeah we did this and at 500 to go there's this lovely clip and it's actually one of my favorite bits of my rowing that i get if i if ever like you ask me what my favorite bit of my rowing is it's this bit and it was coming through 500 to go it was you see we were half a second behind the sinkovich's we'd overtaken the, the norwegians so tough doing that and um there's a clip of us like side on and you're literally like we're just like staring straight forward like not looking out the boat at all and then it pans to the Croatians and they look across to what you can see them both look across towards us with this massive grimace on their face. And just the fact that, that they were the fastest two man boat of all time and we got to inflict that pain on them was like, fuck yeah. Like, um, 
we've spoken before, like no one ever, like no one's ever broken world records or achieved greatness without having that crew that's pushed them. Yeah. And, and, and just to like, even to like, you know, you know, like the sort of old Rocky, like he's going to lose, but at least he can go the distance. It was like one of those type things. And obviously then we get carried through with that. And the, like with about two fifties to go, the wheels were obviously falling off in a big way, but we were just far enough ahead of the Kiwis that they basically kind of tore themselves to pieces. You got them in the head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that we like made them drop the shopping because I don't, I don't think at that level anyone does, but you put people under so much pressure that they will bury themselves into the floor and it will, you'll make them lose their race plan. And that's essentially what we did to them. And, um, like the, the Norwegians got back through us, but like we knew we were in and that was all. And that was like potentially the best race of our lives. And, but then yeah and then it's like we're in the final and obviously that was like incredible um but we then turn up for the day of the final and it's like biblical headwind and it's like me and johnny had the slowest average ergo in the field by like five seconds i reckon um you know we're racing guys who were like in the mid 40s on the 2k and at that point our average was like a 55 or 54 and to a and it was a seven minute race and it was just like there was nothing we could have done like we put in like i have i have literally 100 percent confidence that we did everything we could have possibly done on the, on the day of the final but everything that we needed to be good at on that day was everything that we weren't good at we weren't strong enough and we weren't great in rough water and it was very rough and very very hard and it was just like well that's that then let's do a final like fifth in the world and like not fifth in the world at a world cup well, yeah. everyone's on different like fifth in the world where everyone's turned up yeah they're absolute a game yeah but obviously then you're like you, you get your five minutes where you're like yeah that was great and then you watch the four win and then you watch the eight win and then my missus win wins a silver and then the pair win gold the, the women's pair win gold and and you're like i was like i was as good as these guys like we beat heather and helen in the speed order we we were up there with the eight and the four in the speed order and we delivered our best race on the day but it was just that the odds were against us and it was like fuck and that is like yeah that's no one who gets to that point is okay with that if that makes sense it's like yeah you know i did the whole like yeah i was fifth like that's actually really good and it's like yeah but actually no one in that position truly believes that and uh and it, yeah it's it's like that's the curse of being uh as good as british rowing is right yeah you know because some people will say oh you should be you know how can you be unhappy with that and it's because we've been taught to expect more of ourselves also like it's also like when you've when you've done like when you've done a, a world cup let's say henley seems like a kind of minor event mm -hmm. but for most rowers that's the biggest event they'll ever raise and when you've, when you've won Henley, let's say, winning, like doing Met or Marlowe seems a bit minor. It's like whatever your goalposts are, they will move your expectations for you. And and so, yeah, it's like, I don't think anyone who's actually ever been there in that situation is like, you know, it's like, would, would you know, if you ask people who've been there, would they consider themselves successful off the back of that? They'll say no. And it's like, 
actually anyone anyone in anyone else's shoes would be like well of course they're successful but it's like actually they don't think they are because they've not done that one last thing that they're supposed to do yeah yeah and so coming off the back of that olympics then that feeling and like did you know you were going to continue yeah yeah i i like i, I had sort of joked about this subsequently but it was like if you're going to come up to me on the landing stage and said you've got to start trading tomorrow i'd be like yeah sure let's do it um but obviously if you didn't and that would have been really unhealthy if i had and i'm really glad he didn't because i probably wouldn't i wouldn't have lasted very long if i had but um and then and then you just like anything else really like you say you just kind of that just adds to the fire yeah, it's not so much adding to the fire because obviously to get there, the fire's already there. But it's more like, like whilst I was in the final and, you know, we're like, we were actually in last until like 300 to go. And then we got through the French, who again are now Olympic champions. Um, but you, when you're like hanging out the back of a final, like you've put, you've literally sold your soul and you're not where you want to be. You kind of like all of the, bad training decisions that you've made up until that point then like just kind of you know how you like people facing death their life flashes before mm -hmm. their eyes or when you're facing having a shit olympic final all of your bad training decisions flash before your eyes and it's like those sort of friday third sessions where you just you've got a 12k to do it and you go and you just like quick turns bang it out no thought just like thinking about what you're doing this weekend it's random like, stuff like you'd just be like oh that time i was supposed to do three sets of 12 on the power clean but i only did two like the yeah, weirdest yeah. thing would just yeah 100 and and all of those come in front of you and you're like all of those opportunities to be a better athlete than i am now are right right there as clear as day in your head and it's not that it fueled my fire it just made me realize that everything we do no matter how stupid it seems to do it like there's so much training that we do that I'm like, this is not, there's not much point to this. This probably isn't going to make that much difference because that's the nature of a program where you, any Olympic program is you've got, you've got to do more than what is necessary. And, but every, every one of those sessions is an opportunity to be a better athlete than you were. And actually from that point on, I was like, I can't go out and waste anything. It, no matter what the session is i have to get at least one thing from it even if it's just like i don't know like the most minute thing even if it's literally like i've come away feeling better for it like i'm in a better mood now than i was beforehand as long as you take something from it like then all of a sudden you're always moving forward and i was like from now on that's what i'm gonna do and, and i think i think i have done that ever since sometimes to a fault sometimes it's made me way too demanding on sessions where we should be okay with it not being as good like the conditions are bad or we're knackered from a load of racing and instead i'm there just like like cracking the whip on people and demanding more and not being happy with people and all that sort of stuff and um you know sometimes that has been a, to a fault but so taking that mentality it's sort of into the next olympiad obviously johnny didn't didn't keep going well johnny like carried on for a few years that like, yeah so so we a bit yeah um so we, we in 2017 uh, so we, we came back after Rio, we did, um, had a, you know, like the winter was quite tough. Like I think me and Johnny had both kind of fallen off a cliff a little bit. Uh, you know, like, I, and I think a lot of guys do like after an Olympics, you get like, there is definitely like a, well, you get it every season, but after the Olympics, it's especially pronounced. You get this like depression up until Christmas time. Like the come down from just now. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. It was, it was really bad that year. Like 
especially as there's these like little events that all the medalists get to go to after that and it's like uh you know karen's off to see to the usain bolt premiere and I, i've got to pick her up afterwards because uh, i'm not invited and all this sort of stuff and it's and you know the medalists go to this thing i'd oh are you not coming to this it's like no I, i'm not being invited uh everyone's forgotten about me already um and things like that put put you in a deep hole and but then obviously we had trials and that was my 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 one final trials win um and that was great and and actually like off the back of that i was like oh no like this is different now and we got me and johnny got put in a quad with jack and uh, jack Bowman and tom barris and we went to the first world cup and we won a bronze medal and it was like average rowing um like we it wasn't <laughs> No, 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 from your yeah, from, from like <laughs> yeah, from like compared to what we had done in, in the summer before. Sure, like that was like what we'd done in the summer before was a scalpel, and that was a mallet. Like that gets so hard, isn't it? Yeah, when you have that whole campaign in one boat, and yeah. then that all finishes, and you get back in the boat, you're like, oh yeah, start again. And we yeah, we got we got a bronze medal, and I was like, I was quite happy with that because you know we're we're a podium again. It's been you know it hadn't been too long, but it had been a while, mm-hmm. and. When we got on the podium, I like turned to Johnny being like, Yeah, we're back on the podium. And he was like, royally fucked off. And I was like, What? And he was like, We should have won that. And I was like, Oh, actually, like, yeah, we probably should have done. And for me, that changed a lot of things. Like, I was like, actually, no, we've not come back to just be what we were before. We're like, there's like for all this extra effort we've put in since then, we're gonna we're here to win medals now and win gold medals at that um and yeah we so we went to european i missed europeans because i had food poisoning but then we went to world cup to poznan and we won a gold medal by clear water and that was said pete lambert had come in so that, at that point um barristers then in the single and yeah i remember at that point we just like blew everyone away it was like we just had this like really nicely executed race. We had a, like a really clear race plan. We were all very driven because we'd all come fifth at the Olympics. Like the, the guys in the quad had come fifth as well. So they were like in exactly the same position as us. Um, and we just like everything we said that we were going to do, we just committed to it and did it because that's what we was, that was going to win us the gold medal. And yeah, we went to Lucerne, got silver behind the Lithuanians. We realized they were going to be our big competition. And we just put together this uh, this like complete performance for that year's Worlds, and we were like, I'd like to think we would have delivered it, but then Pete Lambert's back went right before the final, and so we ended up racing that with a spare. We got a silver medal with a spare on board with Graham. I mean, he's not just a spare. Graham is potentially the most talented spare that's ever lived, but um, that that was it's not. never the same. Yeah, with the <clears throat> yeah missing a quirk like that. Yeah, and. Like obviously, that as far as like questions in my career goes, that's probably the biggest one. Like, would we have won? It had we, like, it, that's not even to say that Graham didn't do an unbelievably good job, but it's like we had a unit, yeah. And then it was like just what some like the final was like something you do in seat racing. You just get in, hold on, hope for the best. Um, and obviously, the best would actually turned out to be all right, but um, yeah. So and then off the back of that Pete had to have surgery and all of that so then the quad changed and it didn't go as well and like the 2018 quad we won two world cups but it just wasn't it was so inconsistent because we just couldn't gel as a quad in quite the same way 
And then in 2019, like me and Graham went kind of fast in, in some seat racing. And so they were like, oh, actually, you two are going to be the double. And Angus went into the 2017 in quad, in 2017 combination in my place. And it did quite gel the same way, I think, because me and Johnny were such a good team together that then without one of us, like we kind of amplified each other's strengths. Mm -hmm. And without one of us, the other one then wasn't as good. And, it, um, and so that was kind of all fell off a little bit. Me and Graham did all right in the double, but we again, we thought we should have run. We sh probably should have been world's medalists that year. But we had a bit of like mismanagement through Silretta where we uh, kind of sell over. And that, that, I mean, yeah, that was between me, Graham and Dan just like didn't handle things as well as we should have done. And it kind of cost us more than we thought it did. And we were length off the medal in the end. And you kind of look back on that and go, oh, that's a mistake. Um, yeah. And then obviously we, we got the boat qualifiers to Tokyo. And then obviously, I mean, yeah, lockdown, like that, that that's obviously all in there as well. Um, that was just like madness. Yeah, I bet. Like for me, incredible. Uh, for me as a, as a rower, absolutely probably one of the best things in my rowing career. Just like an extended land training camp. Yeah. It was also like the, the amount I learned about myself in, on that machine. I got a 30 minute PV on my patio. I got 2K PV on my patio. Oh, um, give, give us the scores. I five fifty. Well, that was the thing is it wasn't even planned. It was like we did a, so we did a, a, the the plan was to do a ninety five percent two k, and then the next day do a ninety eight percent two k. So the day before I did a six oh four, which was about ninety ninety five percent for me, and honestly it was felt awful. And then uh, the next day I was like, I had to pull a fifty six or something as as my ninety eight percent. I'm not sure that's actually the number, but it was about that. Mm. And I was just like, I'm just gonna, I was like, I, I know I'm gonna do 100% effort. I'm not gonna like play the safe. I'm just gonna like see what's there. Um, but I don't know what's there. And I did, I was like sat on like mid 128s going into the thousand and then just was like, should we see what's left? And just jumped off a cliff and started pulling 126s. And um, with, 100 meters to go my predicted score was 549 and then the concrete started pouring through the veins and i literally there was nothing i could do about it and i uh yeah it just went back onto the wrong side of the 550 um and so yeah so that was really annoying but uh there was an opportunity to do one later and i didn't take it because i was a bit cooked by this point like obviously we've been on the ergo a long time i'd been going really really well on the pieces and stuff like my scores were like comparable to guys like Mo and TG and the pieces. Uh, not so much on like the 2Ks obviously, but uh, on like the rate cap stuff we were doing, I was like right up there. And obviously that had taken a bit of a toll on me mentally because I was like so up to everything. And on the last day we had um, some guys did a 2K and they all PB'd. And I didn't know about this till afterwards, but uh, our pieces were a 1250 and a 1K. And I did the 1250 at 5.50 pace, like bang on. And then for the 1K, uh, just before I did it, I got a text message from Wingo and it was uh, uh, Ollie Wynn Griffith. And it was a scene from Apollo 13 <laughs> where, uh, you know, when they're coming back into orbit and Tom Hanks goes, up, oh, gentlemen, it's been a privileged fight with you. And then you just see the spaceship just like tearing the atmosphere. <laughs> and honestly, I was literally on the verge of tears at that point. I was just like, like having a fucking meltdown and 
uh, did 124 for the 1k and then afterwards found out that other guys are pb and i've just if i'd like stuck those together i'm on like a 546 or something and i just hadn't done a 2k and then again i was just like could have done it uh, obviously i don't know that i could have done it but i mean i probably wouldn't have even been able to had i put the energy into it because i at that point i was literally like i just need to get this done now yeah there's some unfortunately sometimes more important things to do than yeah yeah your best score on an, on an erg but it did it like that whole lockdown did teach me a lot about myself and about like a the sort of there was like an animal that had to be used to achieve that and the a level of aggression that um i sort of discovered that i didn't know existed like you're saying just able to kind of turn that noise up yeah in a way that maybe you couldn't when you have all the other people around you yeah and actually then what i struggled with going back into the team after lockdown was that i was then like when i got into the mindset that 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 had given me i was then also very like hostile um so i had to like do a lot of work to like manage how i interacted with my teammates because i was i was like actually just and looking back on it now i was like just i must have been a fucking nightmare to work with because i was just so like animalistically driven towards this one thing that it was like i was i would literally just lash out at people all the time uh, sometimes you gotta do what you do i remember when i i always used to love like the group ergos and get get so much help from it and all the yeah. rest of it and then when my back went and i got put on a dynamic and every, a couple of times we tried to get back on the static and it just really didn't like my back so yeah. then it was always just me on my own in the corner on a static yeah. and then you just you have to learn how to do it yourself like doing yeah. a half hour yourself and stuff and it's the same sort of thing like after that point i was like wasn't really interested in like trying to do an over then on else like it just yeah, became yeah. very more sort of like insular thing yeah and I was, so i had obviously I had karen with me and we i was saying this in the whole of lockdown we must have taken about three or four strokes out of time with each other um like we literally uh, we would plan the ergos so um we would try and finish at the same time so i'd like it was like about 100 meters per k um on a piece yeah um and yeah, we, that's how we, that's how we worked. So I was, you know, we were obviously doing all that stuff together, which I think was a huge advantage because there was a lot of guys who couldn't do that. Um, and I don't envy anyone that had to train on their own in lockdown because I think I would have come back, not the size of a house, really out of shape if I had been on my own. But um, yeah, it was, that was, it did leave a mark, I'd say. Like it, it, a real eye-opener in a really good way in that what I was capable of. Like when I came back, I was like, I'm not the same athlete I went was. Um, but then I did have a bit of a hiccup in that I sort of came back in with all this momentum. And in September 2020, I had a bike accident where I was asked, because we were then in, in, in the interest of COVID uh, mitigation, we would do a lot of sessions at home uh, you know, like erging in, like just in your back garden or whatever. And I'd, I'd been doing some cycling. I really enjoyed that, and I'd never really done much before. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna get into that. And I'd go out on rides with Graham and Harry Lees, who are like very experienced cyclists. And that was great um, and really good training for me. But then one day, a woman pulls out in front of us, and we dodged her, went onto gravel, and then I like slammed my brakes on, and obviously the other two being more experienced knew not to slam their brakes on gravel yeah. and so obviously my wheels have then stopped dead and then my bike basically stopped underneath me and i did a front flip um 
and landed on my head and like you see it was like my helmet is like a pancake it's one of those things where had i not worn a helmet i was i'd be the very at the best i'd be like the completely vegetative state now that's not the first time you've you gone in on your head no i Do you remember the 21 died i've still got the scar there i've got a scar there where i hit my and and the scar there like yeah. nine stitches from that but um we've got to explain that for people that don't know if you don't mind going yeah i'll go in uh, yeah I, so it was it was um an old girlfriend's birthday actually and we'd been on a big night out and went to leander to do a duathlon and it was dive in off the landing stage swim across run back over the bridge in not too many clothes and i did a running dive and put my arms down by my side and tucked my head down and where obviously where my head was tucked down i then changed angle when i hit the water and just went straight down into the bottom of the riverbed and um actually it was nathan hillier when i got out of the uh when i got out i was i well, at first i obviously heard this like, earth shattering bang yeah. and thought i'd killed myself and i'm stood up going i'm i'm fucking dead i'm i'm dead right. fucking dead and then i was like hold on i'm not dead i'm just literally talking to myself i was like okay let's get out because i've definitely hurt myself and so i like then went and pushed myself out of the uh like the landing stage and when i stood up um obviously like alcohol thins the blood i'm yeah. already covered in low river water as well and then just this huge red like mass just poured down my face and Nathan Hillier was stood there and nearly passed out when he saw me because obviously then I just turned into this like bloody mess. A monster from the deep. Yeah. And um, yeah, got out of hospital at 6.30 the following morning um, with a load of stitches and a really bad infection uh, from the river. And so yeah, that was, so going rewinding to that like European 2012 campaign is uh, that was during that. Yeah. And um Obviously, I, yeah, was it like not, yeah, nine stitches, four in my head and five in my shoulder. And I'm like, if I get taken out the boat now, that's not me. That's me out of the team. Like, I want to be in the team. I need to be in the boat. And so obviously I text Pete Shepherds, who was running the team, and was just like, yeah, I've had a bit of an accident. I was having a <clears throat> barbecue by the river and jumped in and hit the bottom. And uh, obviously I didn't tell him it was at like three o'clock in the morning when I'd done it. But um, yeah, and... I was, I was like, but the doctor says I'm fine to row. The doctor had absolutely not said that. Um, and so turned up for training. Like, well, yeah, so I did it at 3 o'clock on Sunday morning and turned up for training on 7.30 on Monday morning with a load of stitches in me. And he was like, are you going to be okay to row with those stitches? I was like, yep. Came back in from my first session. There was just like blood running down the front. I basically pulled the stitches open. And so I had to then cut those stitches out myself and then steri-strip it sharp. But obviously that kept on reopening, which is why I've got this like quite fat scar there now because I basically just rode through this thing that sh I shouldn't have done. Um, Savage. I was at my first ever senior camp where you went to Sierra Nevada and like on day one we played football and yeah. Tom Salisbury and I like went for the same ball and he like properly did my ankle, like properly yeah. did it bad. I was just like, there's no way I can go to them now and be like, oh, I can't row. Yeah, and like luckily, my mum's always sort of been. She'd done like first aid and paramedic and stuff, so she'd always like make sure that we had like a first aid kit right when we went away and stuff. Yeah, um, and I just like just did my best to like like play it off, like just hobble away. Went back to my room and like for the next four or five days, just like taped the crap out of it. Took paracetamol, ibuprofen, like anything I possibly could. Like yeah. this is not sensible. I'm not saying you should do it. This is not like, medical advice. No, like just. <laughs> 
sometimes yeah you like it just feels like the time is all wrong and i don't think it's never ever right but yeah like sometimes it's there's some things that you have to do that yeah you don't want to and i don't i yeah i i, I mean if you, i'd have done the same thing again if it put me in that situation i like just yeah i just the way i saw it i was like on the sunday i was I had like a really bad like i was getting like super hot and super cold because obviously i had this big infection i've got a photo somewhere i had to shave my head because where my um cut was there was like loads of pus leaking out of it and so my hair was always being stuck to my head and so i, I then yeah I then shaved all my head off to stop that from happening my hair off to stop that from happening and i had this big fat side of my head where it was just like literally if i pushed on that side of the head pus would come out and it was yeah it, was, it wasn't great but i was just like well it is you know I've got to do what you got, got to do. you got to do what you got to do and we luckily we had enough time that by, by the time we got to um europeans i was like reasonably well recovered like i like it was like scabbed at that point and all the swelling had gone and the stitches well i actually took my own stitches out because i was like i'm not getting a doctor's appointment for taking some stitches out just a set of nail clippers will do i mean that was fine but so then yeah fast forward again now sort of run up into the second yeah yeah, yeah so, so you so you went on that cycling trip with harry lee's yeah yeah and so the other guys and that so i got really bad concussion from that like took me out for two i basically had like a two-week holiday then and even and then after that i had to like build back it and so i basically had like a month of not really doing much proper training and it, it definitely took a bit of momentum away from me um which was frustrating but i, I mean obviously i i found it again and pretty swiftly after that but I, I a part of me is like that i don't know if that did cost me anything in the long long run but i mean i'm sure to an extent it would have done but i was like that that, that was really annoying uh, no one ever gets like like you said in terms of like training that like, you're always trying to do a bit extra because you're guaranteed to get ill or injured somewhere yeah so yeah it's just but the, 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 i think the thing for me is, is because i've sit well ever since that injury that i had in 2014 ever since then i have been so bulletproof that actually i got to a po i've gotten to a point where i have to do everything because that's the only way i'll improve now because i have done everything for so long but there are guys like, like graham for example I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this where he struggles to do the program but if he does the program he's getting back he literally just has to turn up and do it and he will be in phenomenal shape and i wish i was one of those well i don't wish i was one of those guys because i don't not have to be injured but um being a little bit more like that would probably be quite nice i remember when i finished running one of the things i gave up at school uh, was rugby that's what i was really into as a kid um so when i finished i went back to play at, at reading um abbey rugby club and the the like the psychological feeling of like of like knocking into guys or like putting yeah. your body in like a position where you could get hurt was so strange yeah. it was like spent like seven years making sure that i don't do anything yeah. silly i don't climb any trees i'm not gonna fall over like i'm never gonna it was like really strange to be yeah. like it felt like so like oh, like naughty is probably the wrong way but like yeah, just yeah. like oh my god like I'm, I'm like and then you would like get hit and fall over and be like i'm okay i'm okay it's all right you know i'll we'll have to go running tomorrow i remember matt simmons he uh do you know matt simmons yeah 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 so he obviously he was like quite a good rower well, he was a decent rugby player and then quite a good rower and then when he went back to rugby from rowing he was then like a phenomenal rugby player went out to new zealand yeah he was like playing with all the guys in the all blacks and things like that and and i, I feel like he was very unlucky not to like his his position that he plays there's a lot of guys like that in england and i think in any other nation he would probably be one of the first guys into their national team whereas here we've just got an abundance of like massive second rows and 
he uh but he yeah he was when he first started playing he said that like it, it, the first tackle he took he was just like holy hell and and you see like the state of him now he looks like a big old cave troll where he's just been bashed so many times but he's uh like he yeah i mean he then became notorious for just being able to like muller people for 80 minutes straight and you're like okay so it does you do learn a bit about it but yeah like we're very fragile as uh, like rowers are definitely very fragile as athletes it's like if i sit in my if i sit in a chair for too long without moving i'm in trouble the next day i do you do it so much you know like i remember you know like on a sunday off like my girlfriend or i like go shopping wherever like after like an hour of walking i'm like exhausted yeah yeah i'm like i can sit down in a boat for four hours and row continuously and be yeah. fine but i try and walk around for half an hour and die yeah yeah 100 i'm exactly the same like i we um like where i live i've got two flights of stairs in my house by the time i go to bed at night i'm just like panting at the top of the stairs it's like i can row the 2000 meters on the rowing machine faster than 99 percent of the world's population and here i am can barely walk upstairs without losing my breath you just get so i remember um is it mark cavendish the sprinter yeah the, the sprinter basically saying the same thing he was like i'm just i'm more comfortable on a bike than i am stood up now yeah, like, yeah. i've just got to that point where that's what my body wants to do yeah yeah 100 percent. so yeah so olympics number two yeah How did it compare uh very very different yeah we, we'd won a couple of medals we got a european bronze medal that year um how long did you have sort of like full time back before the Olympics? Was it oh, we had the full season, yeah. yeah. So we came back in, um, we stopped training in July. So in the lockdown, we stopped training in the July and then started back in the August. So it was like a very early start for... That's mental. So you stopped because the Olympics were supposed to be in August? Um, no, so th we basically stopped at what would have been the Olympics, uh, roughly what would have been the Olympics in 2020 yeah and then came back we had like a three-week break and then came back from at that point um so it was like a long year huge season yeah. yeah well not not that too long i guess because the olympics was also in july so it wasn't like in 2017 we came back and then had our final was on the 2nd of october so it's like you kind of made up for it the other end if that makes sense but um yeah so it was a, it was quite a long year um, but yeah, we got put in it. We did a few like internal assessments and were essentially selected. Uh, I want to say December sort of time, maybe February. I can't remember, but, um, it's one of those things where you never really know when you're actually selected. Like we were obviously knew we were like earmarked for the double because every time I went out of double, it was with Graham. Like we didn't bother swapping with anyone else. Um, but we weren't, we're never really told if that's what was, we were actually in, um, because it was one of those things where it's like they were testing for the quad and there were some guys around and they're working out what they're going to do like in the other parts of the sculling team so we had to do a lot of testing but um it was always the two of us together yeah. it, it was kind of, that was tough because it's like you we were just on defensive the whole time until we were selected it was quite a while before we actually felt like we were going on the offensive um especially having done like a winter prior to lockdown of that exact stuff um you're like defending your position the whole time and i i was not a fan of that like i actually preferred when me and johnny were like fighting for a seat there was always someone above us that we were chasing as opposed to that time round where it was just me and graham and there was no one above us and everyone wanted our seat and yeah i wasn't such a fan of that it was that it's very hard to deal with that but um yeah we got ourselves secure did europeans got bronze that was great um like you kind of think you're on a good way um 
but then, yeah, had a bit of a wobble going into Lucerne. So, like, we had some personal stuff, but, like, for me, it was um, Karen's dad who had, like, a was terminally ill. If we found out at the start of lockdown, he had, like, a type of blood cancer. And basically, we found out the week before Europeans that he had maybe a couple of weeks left. Uh, not before Europeans, before Lucerne. Um, we had maybe a couple of weeks left. And so, Karen missed Lucerne, obviously. Um, and I did Lucerne. But when we would come back, we would have to then isolate um, for a week where it's like you're not you're like not really allowed to go anywhere. You're allowed at the training centre because we have a special exemption, blah, blah, blah. But, um, and so I did my isolate. I basically got back from Lucerne, got in my car and drove straight to Scotland. And Karen's dad passed away a week later. So that was like, obviously I'm sat in Lucerne knowing like Karen was in Edinburgh and her dad's like basically dying and that was a bit like I, my head wasn't really um, yeah, that's impossible yeah. yeah like especially as he's like a brilliant bloke like it was it was very like he's like one of he was one of those guys where you just never thought something like that would happen to him because he was just like full of life so healthy even when he was actually ill he was like really? you know, just like he doesn't give a shit it's like yeah he's got He's got this thing. We think it might be terminal, but potentially not. And he's just like trotting around, like happy as Larry. And you're like, brilliant. And then, like this, that was the the thing that shocked me the most about that because I was that was my first experience of something like what well, was type of cancer. Yeah, it, it, it like turns into leukemia basically. But um, the speed at which it like deteriorated. He was like, well, I got there a week before he passed away, and it was like he's walking around. He's a bit he's a bit tired. Like he's having to like sit down a lot and he's quite quiet but then from that to passing away a week later it was like insanely fast so that was a very weird time so we only did two races so we did the world the europeans in varese and then the world cup in uh Lucerne, which i think might be in the final one or was it the second no it was the second yeah it was the second last one there was one after that which we didn't do but um yeah because we went to varese uh on we did like the opposite way round to Rio. So we went to Varese first and went, then went to Silveretta. Yeah. Uh, and so the, we were both us and the women were in Varese. And it was, a, I don't know why, uh, it was basically something to do with like COVID logistics that we did it that way. And it was a bit weird doing it that way. I didn't really like it um, because it felt like we were doing a speed camp before a work camp. So it's like we developed these really fine motor skills just to go and like lose them up the mountain. Because in Silveretta you're rowing in like glacier water. So you just like put your blade near the water and you're connected. Uh, whereas in Varese, you have to be really quite sharp. Um, so that was a bit weird. And so that's warmer water is a, is a bit more technically challenging. Yeah. 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 And I think especially with Tokyo, where the water in Tokyo was not only warm, but it was salty as well. So that, I think that, that sort of Silretta was a very, very long way in terms of the sort of feeling of rowing to, um, Tokyo. Um, that's not to like blame it for the way things went for, but yeah. um, you gotta do what you gotta do yeah. yeah I do think it's one of those things where if I, if I had all the money in the world and I was in charge I maybe would have gone from uh, Silveretta to Japan for a prep camp um, but yeah I, like the thing is we, especially in the UK we were so heavily bound by like COVID restrictions and stuff 
that there, we it was just like a maze of red tape to do anything. I mean, looking back as well, like I remember the time that Japan was still set, like there was there was a lot of like uproars and they said yeah. we don't want it, we don't want everyone coming here, yeah. and like people still didn't know if it was going to get cancelled or postponed again. Yeah. And it's easy to look back and be like, this didn't work, but at the yeah. time, and it was like it was madness in terms of like how strict it was when we were there as well. So yeah, and that, that we we got there, we're staying in the village as well, which. Like I actually really like that. So we didn't stay in the village in Rio. We did after the event for the second week uh, when we were like partying and stuff. But this time we actually stayed in the village for the event. And I loved that. Like I thought that was brilliant because like the food hall, you get to like see all these people. Yeah. Um, do you remember, is his name Zhao Ming, the basketball player, the oh, yeah. massive basketball player? He was there and he literally had a guy with him whose job it was to tell people not to take photos of him because he was obviously massive and like he literally was the biggest man I've ever seen. Uh, but like seeing him there was incredible. And then, uh, yeah, like you had like Andy Murray who just come and sit alongside the other British athletes and it, it, people are obviously like, oh my God, it's Andy Murray. And then they go sit next to him and have a chat and he's like the most chilled bloke ever. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, that's one thing I love about the Olympics as well is like everyone there, like he wear, he was sat there wearing the same kit I was wearing. And it's like, that is, that's for me, the best thing about the Olympics. Um, but then, yeah, so we had, you know, obviously it's like walking around in masks and stuff. We did, a, yeah, and that, it was what it was, but um, the racing was, uh, yeah, it was, it was tricky because it wasn't the nicest lake to row on. And it was insanely hot and the prep had been a bit weird. And, you know, like we had to do a bit of erging, like a mini erg camp beforehand. And obviously doing an erg camp in one of the hottest, most humid places I can think of. And it's like, that was hard. And then, and now we were racing and it was like, our heat was like ropey. Partly because of that also, because, and quite rightly so, Graham is near, nearly went to London. Mm did go to Rio and then got sent home yeah. and it's like all he has to do is to make the finish line on his third try and he's finally got his OLY and um, so obviously that was a bit of a, a roller coaster race but we got it done um, and that was you know that was um, you know we, we, beat, we I think we won that one well maybe, no, maybe the Dutch beat us but we got through that fine semi-final was like way more straightforward than Rio um, like I, when I talk about like Rio, it's, it's like it was, you know, kind of this like life changing race of like absolute perfection where we got everything right we could have possibly got right. Rio, uh, sorry, Tokyo was uh, almost like the opposite of that. It was like we just couldn't have got it wrong. Like we just got into, I think we were in third place for a little bit uh, and we just like did what we did, chugged away, came through into second um and yeah the the french like sprinted back through us to take the win in the semi but it was like we were in and it was like we, they can do what they want to do yeah uh and uh, so that was like oh well, look we're in the final great uh, yeah i've heard people uh talk about the olympics in terms of uh, everyone semi-finals are more difficult than finals because not everyone yeah. goes to win but everyone goes to make final yeah yeah and but then we were also like me and Graham 
we were there to win a medal like it was like with johnny it was like if we do it right we can win a medal with graham it was like we'd already won a few medals together oh okay only three but in in a year less we'd won three times as many um and it was like we're here to win a medal um yeah and the final was just like it was it was fine but it was like a bit too crossy and we were on the wrong side and it was a bit like rough and uh, in terms of like how we rode and like it was it was just like and look rowing is an outdoor sport and you you submit yourself to the luck of the draw and it's like you can't blame it because yeah. you're you know what you're getting into it's like being a boxer and then moaning when you get a black eye it's like you can't do that um at the same time like you would have remembered like watching like sydney and athens see yeah like the glass water yeah yeah and well even the semi in rio was glass water like that was that's why we went fast because it was like we could sit a boat in that um but it was like the chinese double who got the bronze they were notoriously bad in rough water and on their side of the lake was quite a bit flatter now i don't think we would have gone any faster on their side of the lake but i do think they would have gone slower on our side of the lake and it it was like a length that off away from a, a bronze medal. Now that the French and the the Dutch were just um, that they were like the what well, the French I think are potentially the fastest. I think they're a better double than the Sinkoviches personally. Like then in that final, I think it's one of the best displays of like that event that I've ever seen. This um these talk about Ertin Senna like he was like at the top but it was level and then when it rained yeah he was gone yeah like when the conditions got awful yeah he had that opportunity to sort of show yeah an ability that others didn't yeah and like in those conditions they just no no I'd not even that like I just think like in terms of if you ask me to show you an example of, of if you say look I want to learn how to row double well who's the first person I go to it's like it's close but I would go to them first and then to the uh, Sinkoviches. What do for what reason? Just I think the French, the Sinkoviches were really good because they were they rode well, but they were also like monsters. Yeah, the French weren't monsters. Like in terms of like erg numbers, from what I understand, they were very similar to me and Graham, but they just rode that boat fantastically well, and they, they it was just nice to even watch them. And it's painful to say that because I've still got to race them at some point in the not too distant future. It's funny that you're saying that, like, oh yeah, no, they only had it. It's like me and Graham, like, oh, right, only a five fifty. Yeah, but then like compared to like you know you got the one of the guys in the Chinese double. Rumor has it was like near pretty much five forty. Uh, the du Dutch stroke man was a forty. Um, you know there are got those those the guys in every event now. You're those that's the standard. you someone has that. Yeah, for me, they're like the, the best one. And ironically, so they, yeah, they did what, six minutes, 0.7 or something in the final, and which is the second fastest time ever done by a double. And the fastest is uh, the Sinkoviches. Yeah. Both times I was in the lane next to them. <laughs> two fast pushing them all. Only the two fastest doubles races of all time get absolutely victimized. <laughs> uh, which is uh, some like really kind of shit prayed to fame. I think you think that's like sucks now, and I think I think the further you get away from your career, the happier you'll be. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And and look, e e even now it's like 
kind of like with what I said about racing the Sinkoviches in Rio and like seeing them hurting, looking over at us. It's like, actually, when you race crews that are that good, it is like a privilege. And yeah. and also having done it now for such a long time, there's no, there's no like animosity there. Like everyone who is there, I have, you know, unless they're like not just not a great bloke, uh, I will have my utmost respect because they're there doing it. And if no one is having an easy ride there, yeah. like everyone is selling their soul to do what they're doing. Yeah. And, and I'm going to do everything on the water to destroy you. Yeah. Afterwards. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just, yeah, uh, like you got, you got to have that sort of respect for them because they've earned that. And, but well, yeah, I do think, I, I do think the French are probably the best double I've ever seen, but, and yeah, and so, yeah, we finished, we had, you know, we ran out of gap, like, you know, sort of, typically we had like quite a big finish, me and Graham, like we were able to like really wind it in well. Um, and, it, but in this case, we like, I'd say with about 150 to go, I look, looked over and we still hadn't made enough ground on the Chinese. And at that point I was like, yeah, we've, I haven't got nothing left to get through them unless they'd capitulate now, like, um, uh, we're not getting through that's that and that was that was hard and that like with Rio at the time I was like better about it and then subsequently found it a lot harder in Tokyo I found it incredibly hard at the time but then there wasn't this whole stuff up all these things afterwards that made you feel shit like it was in Rio like the second week of Rio was like a great time also very very traumatic from like the perspective of you the way you get treated at an olympics when you're not a medalist versus when you are it's like especially when you've in that situation where you think you could have beat one the like difference that makes is like absolutely colossal and you know you're at the same standard yeah yeah it's like um like i went to the oakley house so the in they obviously didn't have us in tokyo but in Rio, they had these houses that, uh, you know, you had the Oakley house. There was this like venue that was run by Oakley and there's like free drinks. If you, if you can get in there with your accreditation, which all the athletes can, you get like free food and drink and, um, all this sort of stuff It's a lovely place to relax. It's like right by one of the lakes in, uh, in Rio. It's just really nice. And I went there with Stan, Ludus, and he's gone there to collect his gold framed frog skin Oakleys. And you're like, oh, that's, that's, you know, they're incredible. And whilst I was there with him, obviously I know I'm not getting a pair because I didn't win a medal, but when, when I'm there and he's collecting his, I see a set of wooden framed ones. And I was like the fucking wooden spoon Oakley's like, yeah. surely. And I said to the both, I was like, mate, with request, do you have a spare set of the wooden frame ones? Cause I came fit and I feel like wooden spoon Oakley's would be quite good. And he was like, sorry, mate, not got any. And it's like, I'm literally stood looking at him in front of a mountain of Oakleys. I was like, you've definitely got some, but obviously he, and the thing is, is like, he probably had no idea. He was probably just like, no, no, I can't, I can't give any away. But to me, the way, like the fact that he said it like that, it, he might as well have just looked at me like I was shit on his shoe. And I was like, that really riled me up. And, and the whole second week was things like that. And, and, you know, you like fly back and um the medalists go in well the, the multiple medalists go first class the medalists go business class the non-medalists go cattle class and it's like i swear they put extra rows in just to make the allegro even worse 
Um, but obviously, Karen's in business, so then I just wander up to business, and the air, the, the cabin crew are just like, yeah, yeah, come along. Do you want some champagne? Uh, and those people, like, they're just, you know, happen to be there. But obviously, those things are huge, like, redeeming moments because these people treat you like you're someone special when, uh, you know, when you're coming from something else, which is making you feel like a piece of shit. I heard a good quote once was, <clears throat> I don't know who said it, but was um, sometimes the only difference between winning and losing is how other people treat you. Yeah. It's not even other people. It's like the athletes themselves, the, the gold medalists look at the fourth places and they know that they have nothing but respect for them because they know that they've put in the same as there. But it's like the other people who don't know any differently. They don't even know the difference in terms of how how they talk to you will affect you. And that, that I think, like really exacerbated the sort of Rio uh, trauma, which led to sort of, like I was saying before, me and Dromini had that like post- Rio Blues for quite a while and that was really big because of things like that. With Tokyo it was just um, we finished racing and we had the, because of COVID we were on a plane within 48 hours and it was like well, that was actually really good because um, I my mum's cousin is a BA captain and his wife used to work for BA as well and so I got in touch with her and was like do you know who will be flying our plane back this is our flight number she was like yeah sure i'll put you in touch and so i messaged this guy this captain the, the guy flying us back and was like any chance of some comfier seats and he's like yeah sure how many of you are there and i was like oh, i was i was like i oh, sort me karen and uh, rebecca shorten lives with us so i was like i sort her out as well and uh yeah we'll just get that done uh I'll, you know upgrade and he's like only three of you and i was like well no there's like a whole eight as well and he was like okay so 11 and i was like oh and they're cock so He's like, is there any other sports? It's like, yeah, there's rugby sevens here as well. So it ended up being 40-odd people. And I I was like, can you upgrade? He was like, I'll see what I've got. And so we get like, get to the plane and then the pilot's like, hello, if you all just like wait to one side while everyone gets on and then we'll get you on. And then, so obviously it's like me, Karen, Rebecca at the front. And he's like, if you just go in, turn left and go to the front and pick the first, the, you know, the, the first empty seat and just work your way back. And so get off. I flew back from Tokyo first class and you're like, that was, you know, that was nice. Like, that was it. Do you remember my dad flew the flight out to Varese for European Championships? In 2021? No, in 2012. Yes, yes, I did. Because yeah, he, he was flying for BA and we took the BA out and he um, they can find out like who's on the roster. So yeah. It was like the captain said, can I swap with you? Yeah. And I remember like telling people and shit, like people didn't believe me. Like Monica Ralph was like, no. Yeah, like no, you're not. I think it was, someone was just like, "It's not happening." Yeah, and he just like popped out, and yeah. like everyone was like, "What?" Tom starts actually flying. This yes, but a better story than that is in, in 2008 on the way back. Um, Banksy knew that my dad could do this. I don't even talked to or whatever, and it, he mentioned, "Oh, look, do you think there's any way? Like, maybe you could put a word in to get me up, upgraded." And Dad was like, "Obviously, like all the people who've won medals are going to be on the top of the list." Yeah, but I can. I'll message the captain. I mean, at the time, obviously, I was like, "Come on, Dad!" Like, you know, he's my head coach. Like. So I says like I'll, I'll I'll put a win and just see what happens, and he gets on, he gets put to his back seat, and he was like, oh, a bit, yeah, it's yeah. not going to happen, not going to happen. And then uh, like half an hour into the flight, oh, it's just comes out, so oh, Mark Banks, so like, yeah, I'm so sorry, like we have actually got a seat for you up, up in the front if you follow me. Walks all the way to the front, and then the seat that he was supposed to have has been given to, I think, Shanae's Reed. the the BMXer that was yeah. going to win gold, but yeah. went down on the last turn, and she's got like cast or something on her leg yeah. or whatever and then she was like, oh i'm I'm really sorry miss but you're, you're actually gonna have to get out of this chair because and mark was like 
No, no, you're all right. You're all right. Yeah. I'll go back. I'll go back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he walked back for it. That's funny. Yeah. Yes. So, so after after Tokyo, what's sort of your motivation now to to go into into Paris? Like, do you have a different set of objectives? Do you think there's anything after Tokyo that's changed in their way? Yeah, yeah. It's more specific than after Rio, but um, like with the, like I was going back to that sort of aggressive mindset that I was talking about. Um, like one of the things that um, me and Graham used to struggle with is like Graham, you know, we we like potentially weren't the most compatible double. Like when I compare like myself and Graham and myself and Johnny, like me and Johnny outperformed our ability like as doubles mm-hmm. i'd say me and graham were potentially slightly quicker but given how much more talent we had as a double like even myself compared to my previous self i was like a way better athlete with, when i was with graham and graham is like potentially the most talented athlete i've ever rode with um but yet we were only a little bit faster than me and johnny and that was just like because of our compatibility um now graham is like a very sort of fluid sculler he's very like loose and natural and rhythmical and i was like very very physical like i was all the speed i got i worked for and graham doesn't quite work the same way like his is a lot more natural but then the flip side of that so sometimes he could come off from a race and be like i just didn't feel like i've got it all out there physically and i used to get quite frustrated with that thinking like you know like you've just not worked hard enough and actually like after Tokyo, I was kind of like cold on a sec. Like, yeah, I can sleep at night because I've worked as hard as I can, but I'm not making the boat go fast. And there's a lot of sayings amongst the, like uh, Christian always says, one of the coaches always says, you don't get paid to work hard, you get paid to make boats go fast. And it's like, actually I was not, that's not what I was doing. I was like selling my soul physically, yeah, patting myself on the back for working really hard and, and then, going like yeah i've done my bit and actually that's not what was happening i was i think i was potentially as much of it like let's say graham had undercooked it and i'd worked really hard and i'm there thinking he's like let us down actually i'd like put the brakes on because i've just been going hammer and tong at it mm-hmm. i've probably not let him do his job well because i've just been like a rabid animal especially in the double obviously yeah the gelling aspect of, of- how the boat moves is, is so crucial so it's sometimes it's not just about like you said working hard yeah so it's, it's, it's interesting to to find that transition yeah and and like subsequently i have i've been like actually like what what do i what you know what am i here to do i'm here to make a boat go fast and it's like maybe i do need to uh, and i have tried to do that and and it's been quite tough like i've had to like re uh kind of reinvent that mentality a little bit um it's the word smarter not harder thing yeah like so many athletes already that we've talked to is it's uh it's really hard to get your head around yeah like working like taking your foot off the gas a tiny bit doesn't mean yeah you're giving up it doesn't mean that you're like not doing your best yeah but then the, the other thing i've struggled with subsequently is like that physicality that I had in everything I did gave me a lot physiologically. Like I was pulling big numbers on the ergo and I have struggled to like, so my, the last couple of years, my ergs haven't been like as good as they were. And I mean, maybe a part of that is just being an older athlete now. Like I am, I'm not 34. Like I do, 
at some point I'm my physiology is going to stop moving forward maybe I have already hit that point now I actually not I'm not sure that is the case uh although my own scores would suggest differently but I think I just haven't quite found the right balance yet between like you know some athletes uh, I, okay I think I use Tom George as, as an example because he's probably the best example um he has like he almost has like split personality not split personality but in terms of like as an athlete he almost has like a split personality in that the stuff that he needs to take easy he is like so methodical so relaxed he just does no more than what needs to be done and you're like it's like all economical it's very relaxed it's very calm and that means he does those things very well in that respect and then when it is time to turn it on and go after it he also does that better than anyone else and it's like some people almost everyone i know in in the team even olympic champions like they do one of those things more than the other quite often they do one of those things when they probably shouldn't they should be doing the other and vice versa whereas like for me i think one of the reasons why he obviously he's like got incredible genetics as well but um one of the reasons why I think he's got to, to be as good an athlete as he has is he's so good at flicking that switch on demand between the two. Um, they talk about that a lot in the military in terms of being able to yeah, on and off. And I like that for me, I'm not, my switch for between the two is not a smooth one. Um, like, Well, you've also come from a different era with Leander and trying to put as much you know, room on everybody yeah. as you can in training and whether you can see an, a window of opportunity, you take it because ultimately without hard work, talent doesn't get to shine. So yeah, but then also like, I'm not, uh, like I'm not that talented. Like I, I don't think like what I've got, like this is the thing is it's like, there's a lot of guys in the team who have done well. Yeah. I think the reason I've got as far as I've got is not, I think what I've, my talent as it were, is not that I'm physically talented, but rather that I have been able to get to the upper limit of what my talent will allow. If that makes sense. I think sometimes that probably requires more talent because yeah. there is a lot of athletes who never get to unlock that level. Yeah. And it, like, and there are guys who I know who have done the same, have the same, you know, you line up our CVs, our rowing CVs. It, there's they look almost identical and the things that they've have potentially been capable of are like way more and like i do think i've spent a very long time scratching around at the very top end of what i'm capable of and and that means that changing making changes like fundamental changes about how i do things can come as a harder but b can come at a bigger cost um and that's why like last year for example i ended up as a spare because like trying to make like not not just that but trying to make that change also helped me back quite a bit as well it's pretty funny like i'm sat here smiling listening to you talk about that because it's very similar to the way that i will talk like i don't think i was ever that good a rower like i think technically compared to where i got to yeah that was something that was always questioned i always struggled with like that one bit that i was good at was just to grind myself into the into yeah the pavement and and that's how i got where i was and I, that made up that filled the gap and my lack of like technical ability yeah and i'd say like my my talent is not is is as being how i apply myself not necessarily like i don't have a huge vo2 max i don't have a massive set well i've got a 
reasonably big set of lungs, but I'm not like, the strongest guy in the gym. I'm not the best technical scholar, but I've been able to improve all of those things probably more than anyone else has been able to improve all of those things. It's like some guys might have been able to improve physically more than I have, but they've not been able to improve technically more than I have and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's what I've done. That's been my talent is to be able to make all of those things better. So that's consistency. Like sat here listening to you know, your career is the consistency of what you've done, keeping yourself uh, injury-free for, for the most yeah. part um, and being able to just... Uh, stare defeat in the face and come back again and again and again yeah yeah no that's um that is that does help if you can take a loss you've got to yeah, yeah you've got to no and we like a funny thing we sort of said before on the podcast is like the guy the guy who stands up with the medal it's the guy who's lost the most yeah for the most part it's probably there are some some outliers some guys who yeah do incredibly well from early on but ultimately it's a representation of how much you can take i do also i firmly believe as well that for those guys where it's like where they have just like won it all doesn't mean as much and it's like yeah you can win the olympics but if there are two people there who will have completely different perceptions of that like the one the the two for me i was thinking about this not that long ago but like take stan for example um stan he was physically unreal he was technically very good <clears throat> he i do not see a scenario where he wasn't going to become the Olympic champion. Like he applied himself well, he was intelligent with his effort and he ticked all the boxes on the talent front. And like, he obviously had to do the work to get there, but almost like how good he had to be and how good he probably could have been, I think are miles apart. Like if you saw him do the ultimate 100% of himself, I think he would have been so far ahead of the field that it just would have looked ridiculous. Whereas you see like Scott Duran from the eight, like he's, he didn't take another, well, he took another stroke, but not not like he, that was it for him because he finished that final with a gold medal in, in fantastic fashion as well. And like, I think for him, he knew full well that that was it. Like he had performed out of his skin every step of the way to, to get to that point and he had put his absolute best performance out on the day won his gold medal and that there was absolutely nothing beyond that for him and i think like what that means for the pair of them it changes the value of that medal to, for the pair of them um because of course and it's no one's fault it's just how it is you, yeah you, you get what you get i remember we had a talk from ben Hunt davis who won gold in sydney yeah. at the um and went into the team in like 1990 and he was like from 1990 to the olympic final I lost everything. Yeah, I spent ten years in the team, and I didn't win shit. That's year it. after year after year, came back and lost and lost and lost. And maybe he picked up a few yeah. smaller medals, but but yeah, to, like crazy. Like yeah. to then at the end of that, take take that medal. Of course, yeah. yeah. The longer the journey, the more yeah, the sweeter the the end goal. But also, like the you have like your capacity, which is like this sort of line, and the further you get along it, the more winning and losing means as well. Um, and it's like you, yeah, you okay. You might win what you might have the most epic moment of your entire life if you win. But the flip side of that is because you put everything into it. If you don't, it's going to cost a lot. Yeah, I think ultimately, like when I decided, decided like when I had to finish, like part of part of being okay with walking away from it was like I've reached my maximum potential. Yeah, yeah. I've blown my body out plenty of times. 
yeah. and like everything else and there's just nothing more I could have done and like ultimately like that's really the goal is, is to yeah. is to fulfill your potential yeah and I do think like that's one thing I'm quite comfortable with even now is like yeah I'm I'm back to do it again and was that always on the cards did you take a bit of time to less decision less so um than Rio but uh and after Rio but um yeah like when I I realized how close I like especially with the final in Tokyo is like with a hundred like I say with a hundred odd meters to go I like look over and I see the Chinese but I did also see the Dutch and the French and it's like like there's the gold medal like I literally looking at I can see it and yeah. in that scenario you're like I don't have to do a great deal to get there then especially like also knowing that like maybe we could have done some things better in the build-up maybe we could have um, been a more been a more compatible unit done better at finding that sweet spot together uh, it's kind of like actually I don't have if I can get it a bit more right next time then that's where I'll be and that's why I'm that's why I'm back because it's like I can still do it and like I might as well take the chance on and also like Paris it's not too close to the sea like Rio and Tokyo like yeah. conditions could be a bit nicer hopefully that'll be less of a thing like what I'd also like is just a fair crack at it as well like to not have to do it in some shit lake with like terrible coastal wind and bumpy water like just a, a fair representation would be good, a, a good chance to actually produce a reasonably perfect for me performance. Um, and if that if that happens, it's like evidence would suggest that that should be about right. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, why why wouldn't you? Do you know what I mean? And if you want to be there, like, like for me again, like um, this is weird. There's probably actually one. It was definitely a moment in my career where uh, something's flipped in my head. It's when. The end of that 2013 season, we went and did that Nottingham trial. Mm. Do you remember? Yeah, the... I was kind of just mentally, mentally and physically fried, and I just didn't know how much I had left, and my body was on its last legs. And uh, we went and stayed at my auntie's. Do you remember? Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we were With the hot tub, hot tub. Yeah, hot tub. We're sat in the hot tub, and I was just like really done. And I remember saying like, I can think of like a hundred other things I'd rather be doing right yeah. now. And you were like, I can't. Like, I want to be here. Yeah. yeah. And I remember thinking like. It's probably time for me to think about doing something else then because I was yeah. like, he wants to fucking be here. But then also, like, there's a hundred times where I've thought that as well now. Like, yeah, that time, yeah, you're probably right. Like, um, but especially with the last like 18, 19 months, like, you know, being a spare, being a spare is like, it's a shit job. And it's not, it's not that the being the spare bit that's shit, it's the way you get treated like this is a metal machine we're a part of it's not it's not like a care center it's like yeah like they don't care about you if you don't win stuff and so it's like it doesn't my two olympics doesn't matter it's like i'm the spare and i would be treat, treated appropriately and it felt like a massive disrespect and it's like the way i was treated felt disrespectful and not necessarily on purpose, though. And just in no. terms of, like you say, like the future success of this sport depends on the yeah. medals that we win. Now. Yeah, and what you've done, and like what you've done in the past, like as soon as that last performance is done, the counter resets to zero, and like that's not strictly true in terms of like your selection and all of that sort of stuff. But it's like, I yeah, I, I'd finish fourth at the Olympics, and 
yeah, like we had gone really fast. Like we did like six oh six in the final, which for a double was rapid. And it was like, yeah, that that's good. We'd done some good stuff, and we're back to do it again. And I didn't turn up. I wasn't treated like a like a king when I turned up again because there was new people now, and they're here to do it. And to be fair, this new batch of scholars are like ridiculously talented. Like they're like they're monsters. And how's that dynamic now being? being the guy and the top end of the squad do you do you, do you enjoy that different role is it difficult uh it's hard because like the, the okay so like the average ergo of the scholars now is like light years ahead of where it was literally two years ago mm. um them they're freaks these guys are absolute freaks and also like in the singles they're all good single scholars. There's no one who's like, oh, I can rely on my crew boat performances. Like, oh, that used to be me. Like, it's like, yeah, I did all right in single, but my strength was the crew boats. Like, all right, what used to be all right is now not any, not good enough anymore. Like, I'm definitely the best single scholar I've ever been. And I'm still, like, I still finished fifth at final trials. Like, that was a bad result for me, like, last Olympiad or the one before. Uh, like, I could comfortably come, like, fourth. Um, but I even won one and it's like whereas now fifth was like actually I thought I was going to do better but that is still probably quite a good result for me um, and so suddenly I've gone like I've not like okay my ergs aren't great but in terms of like my ability to move the boat I actually think I'm going as well if not better than I've ever gone I would like my ergo to be back where it was but it's, you know we'll get there hopefully but um Actually, now that means I'm not like this guy who just gets put in the boat all the time, which I used to be. Like, it hasn't been a question whether I'll be in a boat for like years, and now all of a sudden it is again. And that's been really tough to come to terms with. But I do think that every time I get in a boat, my like experience, my ability to like communicate amongst the athletes, like my ability to go. We want to fix this so we have to work on this like that is that's where i am i i think way ahead of everyone because of that experience and so when i do get in these boats it's like i'm here to help like let's let's sort this out shall we um but yeah there's plenty of guys bringing you jokes but yeah only one guy bringing the experience that yeah you, that you the only downside is you can't get selected off that like i yeah. can't i can't i can't you know that's like saying i should get selected off good chat because that's essentially what it is um so i have to be able to back it up um but like it does mean that when i get you know like I'm, i have a good time when i'm in these crew boats and like whenever we go out in crew boats or like on camps and stuff like that and i get in the boat and i can start chatting away and it's like oh this is starting to go quite well now everyone has a good session we all have a good time and people appreciate rowing with me and that's that's quite nice um but obviously at some point we've got to make the boat go from a to b as fast as possible and i just need to make sure i do that to a standard where i get to then use my other skills um and that that's been an adjustment because like yeah two two three years ago i was like i'm in the top two scholars in the team and now i'm like shit i best hold on tight otherwise i might not even be in a boat next summer um now obviously i'll, I'll take that take that chance because otherwise you know you, you sort of that what's that phrase that you've not come this far just to come this far but yeah uh like it does it, then that's the thing is 
because I'm in that situation now, it makes me realize that these guys I've got now are like my golden ticket. Like they are like, to be blunt about it, they are my golden ticket. It's like, if I can get in a boat with these guys, we're going to go well because they are freaks. And if they do, if, if they listen to my experience, like even half of it will probably go really well. So it's like, sweet, I'll, I'll take that chance. Um, yes, but it's, um, no, it's going, it's, yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting. I've just got the hard bit, the really, really hard bit now is just getting a bum on the seat, which yeah, is a bit weird, but. Yeah, yeah, that's other, that, that's like the first bit. Like, yeah, that's the battle, the internal battle. Yeah. You get in the seat and then, then you've got to go and race the world. Yeah. It's two different levels. Yeah. No, sometimes one can be just as hard as the other. Well, I find, I find international racing way less stressful than domestic, than, than trials. Like racing the guys I know is like with these, like I said, these guys are like hard to race. Like I would take racing anyone else any day, especially as you know, that it adds that extra element of like expectation, which is hard. I've never, I've never enjoyed trials. I, or as I do really enjoy international racing. I'm not sure I enjoy these. <laughs> Struggling with the nerves. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's like Pete Reed said that it was, I was, yeah. Pete Reed said that if you feel like pressure is a privilege. So if you feel nervous is because someone expects something of you and you've probably done the work to deserve that. So like that, that's what it is. It's, it doesn't feel like that when you feel it, but yeah, yeah. it is. Awesome. If you can say that to yourself, at least, then it might go some way to like going, oh, okay, well, I must be all right at this. Just at least trust yourself, you know? Yeah. John, this has been so inspirational to listen to your story and obviously all the challenges and trials and tribulations that you've had to go through over the years. And I absolutely do wish you that gold medal next year and just any medal really. But I'm, I'm confident that obviously with the wealth of experience and like you said, the big talent that the new guys are bringing in, you really do you really can put out a sculling metal machine and that's something that gb's been doing like well you could see in a come up over the last few years the under 23 team has just been like you know bringing a lot of silverware from the international racing and i think it's the time where also they're going to benefit really hugely from you know being able to listen to to the advice that you can share with them and and just really make the bow go from A to B as fast as possible. And I obviously do also wish you the, the best possible conditions that you can race in in Paris to genuinely have a good crack because yeah. being next in the lane next to the two fastest doubles who have ever raced is definitely a privilege. And yeah. this is this honestly, this talks inspired me so much to just even go out and do better in, in my retired life. But uh, but no, it's been it's been honestly so great talking to you. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, no, amazing, mate. It's uh, it's awesome to hear, and uh, I think there's like so much that's that's gonna like resonate with um, with other people, and uh, it's like so important just to hear. You know, there'll be a lot of people that that you know look up to you, and the amount of time you've been in the team, um, just to hear the background, and that's sort of part of the reason we did this because I think like it can definitely help help other people on their journey. But um, same thing, mate. Like absolutely rooting for you, and uh, you know, a privilege in some small way to be a part of. of of what you've what you've done yeah well the most painful loss is still losing no, it's not not losing to you but losing to will satch that <laughs> that was the most painful loss of my career because he lets me let us let me know about it almost every time since yeah there i mean he was in the 60 i was having the ride on my thighs in a two seat he was actually putting the putting the work down quick fires sure yeah we can do some quick fires who's your rowing idol or the person that you've looked up to throughout your career 
Uh, it's not the quickest answer, but probably Pete Reed, just because uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. I'd heard not great things about him before I joined the team, just that he like wasn't the easiest person to get along with, that he was like maybe like thought very highly of himself and actually being a, being one of his teammates and seeing how hard he worked especially as i saw him through his the decline like as he was getting older he's struggling on the ergo a bit to see the way he just did not lay down to any of the challenges that were put in front even now he's got he's in his wheelchair to see the way he's never ever done anything other than charge forward in the face of like difficulty he's like i'd say far and away that like probably the most inspirational person i've known in rowing school yeah i go up for sure yeah out of all the locations that you've trained at or competed at, um, what are your some top three favorites? Silretta is my favorite place in the world, I'd say, to row, uh, just because the mountains, like, I think it's incredible. Uh, I really enjoy rowing at Varese. Like, I enjoy Italian culture, and it's just a lovely lake to row on. And the third one would be... Not Tideway. No, no tideway is like bottom three. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know. Like I would say, I'd say um, maybe a viz, which is where we go on training camp. But I've been there twenty-two times. It is just like a ridiculous place to row. It's like a beautiful hotel and a lovely stretch. It, when it's when it's nice, it's probably one of the best places to row. Uh, I've probably been there too much to appreciate it as much as I used to. But yeah, I'd say. I, ha I have to give it credit for, for being what it is. Those are definitely like good locations. So I guess the last one will be if you were to ever do a competition outside of international racing or the Olympics that you'd like to take part of again when you're 60, what would it be? When I'm 60? Yeah. Um, as in a rowing race? Yeah. Head of the Charles. I, I have actually said that like, I'm... I'm pretty certain I'm done after Paris but I'm not going to stop rowing until head of the the following head of the Charles because even though the rowing there is awful uh, it's like a horrible race to do it's like windy and weird and rubbish and it's all about steering and I hate that but just the like atmosphere and like especially after an Olympics the like vibe that goes with that uh, it's just a brilliant event and I'd probably do that and then also Henley like Henley is like the spiritual home of rowing so I mean, I'll be probably going there, getting drunk, telling everyone how good I was for years to come. I think you've earned that, right, for years to come as well. So. I've got I've got one last one I'd like to ask. So, like, if you could go back to 16-year-old you, yeah. or say sort of 16, 17, when you just sort of start to take it seriously mm. and could give that guy some advice, what would you give him? Probably the same advice I gave myself after Rio. Like, I, I think like especially those years I wasted at Reading and the sort of attitude I took up until Rio where I was like like I wonder I always do wonder how much better if I knew everything I knew now and started again how much better I would be and I'm like quite confident that I would be quite significantly better than I am now of course you would because hindsight is 2020 exactly but um it just to not waste like every single session is an opportunity and it's like it, it sounds really corny to say that like that but it literally does mean just like find something to get from everything and you'll you'll be it's like the old you know someone says left foot right foot you just keep moving forward it's like if you find something out of everything you're doing you're good you're going to be improving 
<clears throat> and as long as you're doing that, you're not standing still. So, and that, like, you know, I'm a sort of quite a good example of someone who's just done that to the point where there's no one, like, wasn't anyone left in front of them to get in the team anymore and go to an Olympics anymore. So it's like, well, just that's all I had to do. Um, if I'd done that earlier, maybe I'd have got there earlier, but we'll see. Well, I say we'll see, we won't see. We'll never know. <laughs> You're still a product of everything you've done, good and bad decisions, and, yeah. and you can shoulda, woulda, coulda, everything. And, I mean, and you can go back that far, but at the end of the day, like, if you know you did the best at the time with the knowledge you had at the time, then you can you, you can only be happy when you look back. Well, yeah, exactly. Awesome. I think this also isn't corny at all. This ties perfectly into the motto of the podcast, which is, you know, remember when training gets tough. The last show counts. The last show counts. So on that note, thank you so much for tuning in. Best of luck to you, John. And easy there. Cue the music. Yeah.